In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live. To exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. But as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that comes in peace to study the best pop culture of the 80s and 90s and present our incredibly advanced, highly evolved opinions on cinema, television, music, and more to you lower, less enlightened beings. And occasionally to annihilate the very worst representations of your planet's popular culture with a deadly laser beam. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be found taking a joyride through the post-apocalyptic wasteland that used to be Los Angeles with Flotus, an invincible dog, and a sassy but kind-hearted stripper. (laughs) (laughs) I am Seth, the host most likely to make the international sign of the donut. (laughs) And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to... That's absolutely true. That's deadly accurate. (laughs) Today, we celebrate our independence. (laughs) We're coming up on America's favorite holiday, which is also one of Hollywood's favorite holidays. A time we like to celebrate by grilling some burgers, shooting off some fireworks, taking a dip in the pool, narrowly avoiding destruction at the hands of a cranky alien species, and palling around with a certain former Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In honor of the 4th of July, we're bringing you not one, not two, not three, but four alien invasions, all from the mid-90s, specifically 1996 and 1997. All very different in tone. And we are calling this, uh, let's see if I get this right, When We Were Young presents the mid-90s summer alien invasion blockbuster extravaganza? Uh, The early, late, mid to late 90s summer (laughs) alien invasion spectacular. Because, Chris... When We Were Young is having a summer of spectaculars. Well, well, we'll see about that. I think that remains to be seen. That's up for the viewers to decide. They can't see us. It's a podcast. <laughs> That's up for the listeners to decide. <laughs> so first up in this episode, we've got your action blockbuster spectacle alien invasion film, Independence Day, and your wacky offbeat star-studded sci-fi send-up, Mars Attacks, both from 1996. And then in our next episode, we'll bring you 1997's mainstream studio action comedy star vehicle, Men in Black, and the serious and sentimental sci-fi summer drama, Contact. From satire to slapstick, from deadly to dramatic, the mid-90s proved that there was an alien invasion tailor-made for everybody. Are you an Independence Day or a Mars Attacks? (laughs) Are you a Men in Black 
or contact. I'm an ET, guys. <laughs> Are you a Monica or an ack, 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 ack? <laughs> We will answer these and other probing questions. Probing. Mm-hmm. As we take you back, way back to those carefree days when we were young. So we're back. <laughs> A dinosaur story. I just want to- <laughs> Obscure '90s reference that only people between the age of like 36 and 39 will understand. Yeah, so literally everyone who listens to our podcast will get that reference. Yeah. It's 100 percent of the people in this room right now, <laughs> guys. We're in the same room. Yes. Is that even possible? I think it's real. It feels real to me. Are you a simulation? Is this like? Uh- <laughs> Fucking that fucking movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that one. (laughs) Uh, Ready Player One, where it's all simulation. Becky has gone senile in the (laughs) ensuing year. We're knocking the rust out of the wheels here on the When We Were Young podcast. Seth has grown whiskers. (laughs) But we are here for the first time since September 2019 in the same room. Yes. Oh that, my God. Is that true? Yes. What? It's been almost two it's years. Almost two years. Oh, it's because we took a break, and then as soon as we were going to get the gang back together again, <laughs> COVID hit. It was our fault. Sorry. Oh boy. <laughs> Honestly, it felt to me like it was closer to two years, and now I know why. Because <laughs> it almost was. <laughs> Well, time is so weird. I've been talking about this with people, and, like, when I'm saying what happened, like, in 2019, I keep saying last year, because it's like, my brain just skips Mm. 2020, which, I mean, I'm fine skipping that. Time was a fuzzy concept to me even before the pandemic times, but now it's it's at least comforting that it's that fuzzy for everyone else, too. Mm Mm-hmm. It is truly wonderful to be back with both of you and actually see your faces when I'm talking to them. You know, now we can tell when somebody's lying about something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know all my tells. That's right. (laughs) Because you would lie about an opinion or something. That's right. That's actually a really great unplanned segue into what I'm about to say. (laughs) Since we are covering four pretty colossal films in these episodes... One of the ways I got my podcast co-hosts to agree to this was to tell them I would not have an opening question to save time. And that was a lie. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I even forgot that you'd said that, but I knew it was a lie. I do have an opening question uh, because these films demanded it. They (laughs) demanded it, I tell you. Are you sure it was the movies that demanded it and not yourself? I am the movies, and the movies are me. (laughs) Okay, that checks out, actually, when you lay it all out like that. (laughs) Because we're gradually returning to the world as we knew it before COVID and all that shit, we're also returning to the cinema. And so my opening question for you guys, um, because I know we always talk about movies and when we saw movies, did we see them in the theater and stuff? But what I want to know is, like, what was your actual theater-going experience like? 
what were the theaters like? What did you eat when you went to the movies as a kid? Kind of in celebration of movie theaters and the fact that they semi-survived this whole some of pandemic. Them. Yes, I know. It's still a very precarious situation for theaters and some of them have closed and it's sad, but that's why I wanted to kind of celebrate the actual like going to the theater experience with these gigantic blockbuster movies. Most of them are like big popcorn movies. Well, I think I probably had an experience like anyone who grew up in the American suburbs where you went to the mall or you went to the movie theater near the mall, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that shared the parking lot with the mall. Um, and that's where we s- saw movies like uh, cineplexes, multiplexes. I think growing up, we were definitely a like snack family. Like we would get the popcorn and the soda and like, you know, handed down the line during the movie (laughs) i personally was never like a candy person but like the candy definitely was like do you want like the candy would go down (laughs) you'd have to like interrupt you watching the movie to be like i don't want candy (laughs) like or have to like pass it to the next Mm. person just consistently for two hours (laughs) sometimes it's just easier to eat the candy than like deny the candy (laughs) yeah and i definitely was like you know extra butter substance on top (laughs) pass me a shot of that butter And I became a non-eating in the theater person when I actually started, like, caring about my myself and my health <laughs> and weight and things like that. And then I was very much, uh, I, I do not want any of that in the theater. What I found interesting was, like, when I lived in Australia, that they have their own, like, things that they eat. They have these things called chalk tops, which are little ice creams that are have chocolate, like a chocolate coating on top chalk tops and like that was like a, a normal uh movie theater snack wow and i like would the always eat them have, there <laughs> like the ones they have at trader joe's something like that okay yeah like the hold the cone oh, yeah a, a li- marvelous movie theater snack a little oh bit bigger God. than that um wow you know i had a boyfriend then and he would get them so then that became my movie theater snack is these chalk tops and i would like eat ice cream at the theater <laughs> like that was like a weird thing and yeah, I'm back to like, no thanks. Like, unless we're like at somewhere fancy where they have alcohol and then it's definitely like I'm drinking wine or a cocktail in the movies. How often did you go to the movies? All I the would time. take it fairly often. All from, the time. Yeah. All the time. Seth? It's mostly the same as Becky. Movie theaters were usually an extension of malls connected to malls or like directly adjacent across the street from them. I had a multiplex and a mall right across from the neighborhood that I lived in. Basically from the time I was in kindergarten uh, until I moved to California, that multiplex closed long before I left New Orleans. But when you asked about what characterized your movie going experience at that age, like the Bell Promenade Mall and the theaters there would have to be it for me because it was the time in my life when I could literally walk to the movies. I would just have to like cross two streets with two or four lanes of traffic or something to to get across to where the movie theater was. Why do I picture you like dodging and weaving through traffic to get to the movies? That's accurate. That's accurate. <laughs> I played a lot of Human Frogger and took my life into my hands every single time. And it was worth it because movies. Depends on the movie, really. But Well, and also keep in mind in New Orleans, jaywalking is not just legal, it's mandatory because <laughs> uh, there are no crosswalks anywhere. Um, especially in the part of uh, the city where I lived. Uh, But yeah, like going to the mall at Belle Promenade uh, was always like an easy way to kill time with friends. There was an arcade there. There was like a Babbage's 
<laughs> and like Suncoast video and like some, you know, like electronic stores so you could check out video games and also see what movies were coming out on video. Going to that theater, I think, is the thing that reminds me the most of going to the movies at that age. And my snacks, Becky, like you, I'm, I was definitely part of a snack family. <laughs> uh, I don't know. One of my favorites was like snow caps. Oh, snow caps. Milk duds. I don't know what snowcaps are. Snowcaps are little chocolate drop chocolate chips, but with a white coating of tiny candy beads on them. Yeah. I bet you've like seen them a million times. I've never had that. I can imagine what it tastes like. It tastes like chocolate. It sure tastes like chocolate. With little crunchies. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, with little crunchies. And I mean, I would branch out, you know, to to Skittles or Starburst. I was never a huge popcorn fanatic. It is the quintessential movie snack, but it was never my favorite. The popcorn itself was never as good as when we made it at home. That's why there's quote unquote butter topping. (laughs) I guess so. I guess so. And if I'd done some shots of butter topping, I think I would have understood the allure at the time. Sadly, that was one of so many things I missed out on loving as a child. (laughs) Um, Chris, what about you? There were exactly three movie theaters in my uh, immediate surroundings uh, when I was a child. Um, one at a mall, one across from the mall, and one also across from the mall. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Two were AMCs, one was a general cinema. The biggest was the general cinema with a whopping eight screens. Mm. They were all fine, but like kind of rinky-dink by today's standards, you know. They got the job done. We went often, I feel like, like once a week or every other week at some point. I saw every kid's movie that came out between like 92 and, you know, 96. So I know that we went to them, you know. Yeah, I feel like it was at least a weekly thing for me. Mm-hmm. I could, Yeah, I can't remember like any more specific. I mean, it's a great way to get like kids to shut up for two hours. I mean, most of them. We did didn't really get concessions all that often when I was a kid, I don't think. We were smugglers. Uh, we were we would go to like Target or something and get can like cheaper candy and smuggle it in. I don't know what it is, but like my parents would never ever smuggle stuff. It got to a point where I was like, Mom, we can get bigger candy literally anywhere else. What are you doing? It's funny. I always felt like a little bit like we're being bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's like I hope they do. don't catch you. <laughs> But, like, then I worked in a movie theater one summer, um, which I don't know if I've even mentioned on this. I had no idea I knew that, but outside the podcast, I knew that. So I got to see how the sausage was made, so to speak. That's what's in the popcorn, by the way. Oh, that (laughs) does explain it, actually. You didn't get to see how movies were made. You you saw how they were presented. Exploited, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I was responsible for scraping up the sticky stuff that's sticky on the floors and putting it back into the butter topping machine. That's right. Remelting it. That is a joke, but I did like make the popcorn and it was very off putting to like make me ever want to eat, not ever, but like for a while to like actually eat the popcorn. It's, it's not like bad, but it's just you make so much of it. You, and then you put it in these gigantic like human sized bags that are just like stored. And so it's like, it's not the freshest. Mm. I don't know if this is a well kept secret, but it ain't the freshest popcorn. It was not just popped. Um, it was popped like maybe that week. I don't know how, Oof. I don't remember like how often they did it. But. So that was an interesting experience too. I saw every movie literally that like played at that theater that summer. I've seen some of the weirdest movies of the year 2000 because it's like, oh, <laughs> yep, I saw that, that, that. Oh, that's amazing. Do you have a list somewhere? 
kind on, of yeah list like there's this amanda pete movie like called whipped like <gasps> i definitely saw that movie there was a penelope cruz movie called like woman on top or something like that yes oh you weren't I kidding i remember that i saw disney's the kid because it like everything was free <laughs> and you could just like go sit in there and, and watch it so oh, that's amazing but you paid with your time chris <laughs> but they also paid me for my time so really it, i came out <laughs> slightly behind <laughs> that's amazing i had no idea you worked in a movie theater yeah, so, and then have you guys been back to movie theaters? Are you planning to go back to theaters soon, or? Yes, I went last night. Oh. It was amazing. <laughs> Did you eat yeah. the butter topping? No, I over- had a glass of white wine. <laughs> These motion pictures may be going somewhere, you guys. Um, I was so giddy walking in, um, because here in L.A., they just lifted the mask mandate, so you don't, businesses don't have to enforce um, mask wearing if you're vaccinated. And so it was like, oh, I'm doing, what's going on? I have to take, I'm taking out my mask. And then like, I was like, ticket taker, like scan my phone. Do you have alcohol here, please? <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like so giddy. Mm-hmm. And I saw In the Heights and it was awesome in a theater. And the first performance is uh, this rousing, you know, intro to the world. And it ends like, you know, with a great shebang. And, and everybody in the theater was like, yeah. And I was like, we're, I'm around people. <laughs> Hooray, we're all clapping together. It was great. I have not returned to the cinema. Um, we've all been vaccinated. Most of my friends are all vaccinated at this point. I just haven't really been notified of any movies that would make me feel compelled to go back to a movie theater right now. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of my personal favorite theaters are still open in L.A. Some of my very favorites, like the Arclight, have closed down. Oh, R.I.P., um, Are guys. hopefully going to be bought up and reopened very soon. But yeah, there's not really a movie that I feel like justifies going there. Not that I really think it's all that risky, because I'm sure that relatively very few people are going to be rushing back into theaters. Like, they're rushing back and cramming back into nightclubs and those kind of venues. I can attest. The last movie I remember seeing in theaters was Cats, and that was a tremendous experience. I'm not saying that something has to necessarily beat Cats in order to get my You'll theatrical never dollar. Beat cats. <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult. It's difficult, but I do look forward to going back into a movie th- like a cold movie theater with a moderate amount of people in it. Because to me, watching a movie in a theater is an experience that's absolutely not the same at home, and not the same, especially just like watching it solo. Yeah, I mean, I really missed going to the movie theater, especially like in award season. I really feel like I didn't have the same experience with like a lot of movies like Nomadland mm-hmm. or The Father uh, that yeah. I would have had in a theater, um, even though I still, you know, liked those movies. Um, I haven't been back yet, which is kind of surprising to me, but I feel like I need to like first go to like a like Tuesday afternoon matinee yes. of a movie that no one else but me wants to see. You gotta do the early bird special. So it's basically just me sitting in a theater alone watching it like I would at home. <laughs> but for some reason like I wanna like kind of like test the waters. I mean maybe I'll go to like In the Heights. I'm not like opposed to it. But like before it's like a big, big event with a ton of people. I just wanna kind of like make sure that I'm as comfortable as I hope I will be like going back. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, we are talking about four alien invasion movies that all came out in 96 and 97. Independence Day, Contact, Men in Black, and Mars Attacks. These two years also saw the release of The Arrival, Starship Troopers, Alien Resurrection, Star Trek First Contact, The Fifth Element, and Space Jam. All alien 
Paloozas. Wasn't X Files still on TV? It was. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was in the height of its popularity. Kind of. It was like it just finished season three, so it was like really mm. big in like pop culture. And the movie would be coming out like ninety eight. Yeah, so there was, like, a thing. Alien movies have obviously, like, always been around. Like, A Trip to the Moon has, like, an alien (laughs) in it from, like, I think it's 1903. It's not, like, this was invented in the 90s. Even, like, going back to, like, War of the Worlds, which a lot of these movies kind of ultimately you can trace their roots back to that. That was published in 1897 by H.G. Wells. And then famously, there was the Orson Welles radio broadcast of it in 38, where a lot of people turned on the radio, like, not knowing that it was a program and thought he was describing an actual like Martian invasion because you know 30s you know they weren't as set pop culture savvy as we are I guess <laughs> and we talked about you know like the 50s like sci-fi movies like that big wave there were a ton of like alien invasion movies like the thing from another world that the thing was based on and in the 80s there were like alien and predator movies E.T. <laughs> There was E.T. But, like, what's interesting about kind of the period that we're talking about today is that, like, we were coming off of a pretty, like, cute and cuddly alien (laughs) phase because of, like, E.T. in large part. Close Encounters, ALF was on TV in the 80s. There were movies like Starman by John Carpenter and Cocoon that were about, like, friendly aliens. Out of This World, (laughs) the TV show. Mac and Me, Batteries Not Included, even Star Wars, Howard the Duck. (laughs) If you will. Cute and cuddly. (laughs) Third Rock from the Sun was on TV at this time, too. Aliens are always, like, around. They're always, like, in our stories. Yeah. It just kind of depends on what the tone is, um, Mm -hmm. what we're interested in watching at that time. And also in the 90s, like, NASA was exploring Mars. There was a story about, like, discovering the possibility of, like, past life, I think, on Mars. Yeah, the potential of fossilized life. I think happened around that time. And I also just wanted to touch on the question of aliens as a thing in pop culture, because I feel like the kind of alien stories that are part of all these movies are the warlike side of that. And I do think that that specifically started to come around at the time of the Cold War. And of course, that's like a 60-year span of time. That kind of makes sense with how prevalent and pervasive that kind of idea of aliens is. Because it's making the aliens into a a definitive threat from the outside. Yeah, aliens were definitely a metaphor for communism, communists, you know, in the 40s and 50s, and then Russia, Soviet Union. But then in the 90s, like at the point when these movies came out, like the Cold War had ended. So it was like, now we need, like, Russians were villains, or Soviets were villains in so many movies of, like, the 80s. And we needed, like, a new villain. And so, like, we weren't really at war with anyone at the time. So it was like, oh, I guess we'll just have aliens be, like, the bad guys that, like, Nazis would be in, like, a 40s or 50s movie. I might be jumping the gun on a discussion, <laughs> but it feels like maybe in these particular movies, it's less about oh, the aliens are equal to Russia or the Middle East or whoever, and it's more about how do we show American awesomeness? <laughs> well, we need to fight somebody, and it doesn't save matter. It for, save it for the pod, Becky. <laughs> I, am, I am saving for the pod. This is the pod. Oh, wait. That's right. We're here. But yeah, it seems less about this is what aliens represent and more about how can we show how awesome we are? And yeah. I think that ties into exactly what Chris is saying, because at the time when the Cold War was ended, then America was... Was not overtly visibly acknowledging it was waging a worldwide war. <laughs> One of the biggest notes I made for this was just how clear it was, like in retrospect, just how kind of nationalistic 
not just these stories are, but these kind of themes are, where like aliens are this outside threat that's definitively non-human, so all the humans have to rally together as a as a tribe. And I think the kind of political weight of that is an interesting thing to see in retrospect. Yeah, and if anyone needs like proof that this was the moment to like that like aliens were a thing, the time July 1996 cover was a big alien and it said aliens have landed and it was all about <laughs> all of like Independence Day and then like they knew like Mars Attacks was coming and so it was like collecting all the like aliens that were in culture then. So it was a thing that will bring us to Independence Day or ID4 as it was <laughs> popularly stylized in I marketing and I called it ID4 in my notes because it's hard to type out Independence Day all the time. Ship all bang up! Who's the man? Huh? Who's the man? Wait till I get another plane. I'm lining all your friends up right beside you. Where you at, huh? Huh? Where you at? Welcome to Earth. That's what I call a close encounter. The film was released on July 3rd, 1996, directed by Roland Emmerich, written by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich. They wrote it during a one-month vacation in Mexico. (laughs) It was greenlit by 20th Century Fox the day after they sent it out for consideration. Of course it was. The idea was inspired on a press tour for their previous film, Stargate, when Roland Emmerich criticized how aliens always appear subtly in films and are, like, hiding out in a small rural town in, like, someone's barn or backyard. He thought they'd show up in, like, big-ass spaceships and just, like, launch an attack. They wouldn't need to be so subtle. And then they were like, oh, that's actually a good idea for a movie. So they... Quickly, quickly wrote it. <laughs> and then immediately sold it. Does anyone know why this movie is called Independence Day and centers on Independence Day? You mean why? Like it, whose idea it was? or? Yeah, um, so the reason is because of Mars Attacks. Huh. Mars Attacks was already like in production or pre-production. You know, they, they had a green light and they had a release date in August of 96. Roland Emmerich was like, well, we can't release our movie after because that's going to be like a parody kind of of this kind of movie. So Mm. they basically just called it Independence Day to secure the release date of Independence Day. (laughs) Honestly, hearing the story, writing the script on vacation, immediately selling it, and then immediately getting the production and everything way moved up. I hate to say it, but I got to give it to them. (laughs) They absolutely won. They won. (laughs) I like the idea that they rushed this movie into production. Like, this is not like a, like, Steven Soderbergh, like, films a movie with Meryl Streep on a yacht. Like, this takes some planning. (laughs) The studio, for some reason, didn't really like the title Independence Day and didn't get that as a marketing concept, which doesn't make sense because it's, like, a perfect marketing concept. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. They wanted it to be called Doomsday. So part of, like, the Uh. inserting the, like, president's speech was, like, to persuade the studio, like, this is a whole thing. I got it. Yeah. That makes sense. Studios don't always know what they're doing, as it turns out. (laughs) Proven by Independence Day. But Roland Emmerich does? Roland knows best. (laughs) (laughs) Dean Devlin pushed casting as the president, Kevin Spacey, a a friend of his. Well, at the time, that would have been great. (laughs) (laughs) The studio disagreed because he was not a movie star. 
Oh. Well, he had just won an Oscar. Yeah, but apparently, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, was that Oscar for... Usual, usual suspects. Su- okay, yeah. that's what I thought. So he was a know. he was a known person. But I don't, I don't feel like he was the lead of he that might movie. Not, it might not have. He probably didn't actually have the Oscar when they were casting because okay. that was it would have happened in '96. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, true. That makes okay. sense. Ethan Hawke was sent the script, presumably for the role of Hiller, played by Will Smith. Eventually, when he got to the line about ET, he told his friend this was stupid and threw it out of the car window. <laughs> and that's why I respect Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Yeah. Big mistake, Ethan. You ended up in those Before Sunrise movies. (laughs) Big mistake, Ethan. Big mistake. Huge. (laughs) Link later, buddy. Matthew Perry was originally cast in the role played by Harry Connick Jr. (laughs) Sure, why not? There was a a stroke of genius in the film's marketing. Um, It was one of the first movies and, like, the biggest example of, like, premiering a film trailer during the Super Bowl and basically they kicked that off as a trend. Oh boy. Like every big movie now has to have a Super Bowl ad and um, that was here. One of the film's taglines was don't make plans for August, which I do like. (laughs) It's a good tagline. That's pretty great. The reviews were sort of mid-range, a few pretty positive, a lot more average, you know, kind of recognizing certain flaws, but maybe saying that they had a good time anyway. Lisa Schwarzbaum of Entertainment Weekly said, This rootin' tootin' blockbuster is adorable. What? <laughs> it's as happily techno-horny as any chapter of the Star Wars trilogy, as satisfyingly hokey and full of designated colorful characters as any of the great 1970s human face of disaster epics, the four airport sagas, the towering inferno, etc., Independence Day is as corny as Kansas, high as the flag on the 4th of July. And if you'll excuse the expression I'll use, it's intrinsically American fun. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rita Kempley of the <gasps> Washington Post. Back on the Rita Beat in real life this time. <laughs> well, she's not here. <laughs> You're always welcome on the show, Rita. We keep a seat open for Rita Kempley on every recording session. She said, Independence Day, the eagerly anticipated alien juggernaut, is fueled not by cosmic imagination, but by plain old-fashioned ballyhoo. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) An overgrown hybrid of disaster epic, can-do combat adventure, and 50 sci-fi movie, this craft has visited our world many times before. And while she's a beaut, the sticker on her titanium bumper reads, Been there, done that, be me up, Scotty. Because you can't tell that was a negative review. I don't know what that was. Rita only rated it two ballyhoos. <laughs> the film's budget was $75 million. <laughs> Wait, was that real? Yes. At the time, it was $75 million? Yeah. Wow. Do you think it made its money back? I think it did. <laughs> I think it did relatively well, right? It earned $306 million domestic, $511 million international, for a grand total of $817.4 million Holy worldwide. shit. It was the number one movie of 1996, breaking several records set by Jurassic Park uh, for opening tallies a few years earlier, uh, which The Lost World then took back the next year. <laughs> taking that, Roland. <laughs> and at the time, I believe it was the number one grossing movie of all time, um, which would then be taken away by the little ship that could. <laughs> <laughs> Not an episode goes by where we don't talk about Titanic in some way. (laughs) That's right. The film was also nominated for two Academy Awards. Best Sound, which it lost to The English Patient, and Best Visual Effects, which it won. Hmm. I was about to say, like, that makes sense. 
So, did you guys get your ID4 on when you were young? <laughs> I remember at one of the non-mall movie theaters, it was like a Ooh. it was like a, a it was either a one screen or a two screen. We waited in line for hours to see this movie. Do you remember wow. waiting in line for movies? I do. Do you remember that? Yeah. Like and I'm not even saying just like Star Wars, um, but like big movies like this. And they're they're not that they don't they're not that often. It's like maybe Titanic, this movie, like I'm trying to think of like another like huge one. Um, but before you could do like online um tickets and and things like that, like you had to wait in line. I remember waiting in line for hours to see this movie. Were you with friends or it was with family? my family? Okay. Man, what a nostalgic rush <laughs> thinking about that again. So was uh, it like opening weekend? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Not opening day even, opening weekend. Because I remember being outside that little one or two screen theater next to the Long Island Railroad waiting to go in to, to see it. And I mean, I remember seeing it. I remember, you know, it was a rush. You know, it was exhilarating. People, you know, applauded at the president's speech and people were like, you know, taken aback by the carnage. Like, it was definitely an event. Seth, did you ID4? I ID4'd multiple times. I remember this being a movie that I, like, saw the trailer for and got really excited. And I liked Will Smith from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'll see a movie with this guy. And it was absolutely a movie I remember seeing. I'm sure I saw it at the Bell Promenade Theater. And, like, part of the luck in having a small mall and a small multiplex movie theater nearby was that that would be the kind of place where I could see a movie opening weekend and never have to wait in line. And, you know, in New Orleans, when it's, like, over 100 degrees outside, during the summer that's an especially blessed thing so yeah i absolutely remember seeing this movie multiple times in theaters with gigantic sodas and my normal retinue of snacks both as like an escape from summer heat and as like at around 12 years old like a movie geared to make 12 year olds happy it was a joy at, at the time for me to see that in the theater hmm that's funny because i saw all four of the movies we're going to talk about in these episodes in theaters because as I said, I went all the time, um, especially like as I was like more of a teenager. And this is the one of these four for some reason that I remember the least seeing in the theater, which is like ironic because this is the big like biggest spectacle movie, one of the biggest spectacle movies of the entire decade. And I saw it late, I think. Like it was not opening weekend. I did not wait in line. Like it was like a week or two, maybe even three weeks, like into its run, where it had already made this like big cultural impact. It was like in Entertainment Weekly talking about like how much money it was making. I obviously knew about like the White House blowing up. That was like the thing that I think that that was known even like before, you know, I think that was in like the trailer. But I'm pretty certain that was in the trailer or even was that if the post yeah i think there was yeah. a poster with it and i'm not sure if they gave away the full explosion in the trailer but it's like you knew that like oh that that ufo is gonna blow up that white house right there <laughs> <laughs> i hope they've got a backup white house somewhere <laughs> well it wasn't the real one <laughs> um so yeah i like i knew what this movie was when i was getting into it but i had a little bit of a beef with independence day Un petit boeuf because there was one movie that came out in the summer of 1996 that blew everyone away with its special effects. It was supposed to be the summer of Twister. <laughs> and it was the summer of Twister for two months until 
goddamn Independence Day comes and like stole all of its thunder. And I was, <laughs> Chris, thunder. people still liked Twister. We like Twister. <laughs> But we didn't, collectively, we were not talking about Twister anymore. (laughs) And it was sad. (laughs) It was so sad. And because, like, Twister had made an unexpected amount of money, everyone was like, whoa, it's what a box office hit. This movie made, like, 300 million more than Twister. So it was like, it just, like, blew that whole conversation out of the water. Are you calling Twister an underdog? (laughs) Yeah. It's weird that ID4 beats F5. Oh, that's good. That's real good. Rita, where were you? <laughs> that was right there. So I liked the movie. Um, I ended up like buying it. I don't know if you guys had the VHS with the holographic cover. You would spin it, and it was like the White House, and then you like turned it to the side, and it was like blowing up. I didn't, but friends of mine did, and I remembered coveting that. I was a hologram freak. <laughs> like, if it was a hologram on a wallet, if it was a fucking like cheap ass laminated card with a cheap hologram thing, I was like, how does it work? How is this real? I am learning a lot about you guys. <laughs> Honestly, today. this is even more probing than we expected. What are we going to learn about me? Ooh, I can't wait. Did you cry? <laughs> I, I did not cry to Well, I mean, that brings us right into it. We watched Independence Day again, right? What did you think of ID4 today? I was super excited for this episode, not just because I knew we were all going to be able to sit back down with each other in real life to record again, but also just to re-watch these movies. I had not seen Independence Day since the <laughs> theaters. Like, I, I, friends of mine had the VHS and I coveted their holograms, but I didn't really watch that movie. When I have the big dumb action movie Craving, I never really had the craving for that movie. We'll get into the other movies that I definitely had an urge to see multiple times and revisit it afterward. But yeah, rewatching Independence Day now, I do appreciate some things about it. I do think it hits a lot of the sci-fi action movie beats pretty effectively. I do like a lot of the set pieces, and there are moments that I really enjoy in it that I think are surprisingly really well done. And I think Will Smith is... Will Smith, like, he's just one of the most charismatic, like, physical performers and comedians, but he doesn't really show the comedy chops so much in this movie. But overall, I just was not super into it. I didn't think it was amazing. I don't know if I would say that means it doesn't hold up, because again, it's like not really a movie that I felt the need to revisit a ton. And I do think it's like appropriate that it won that one Oscar, but I do not think it should have gotten any other Oscars. It makes a lot of sense learning that it was written over the course of one Mexican vacation. (laughs) I think it's not a super strong movie, but I can totally understand why it was such a huge worldwide blockbuster. Becky? This movie is so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I hated this movie. <laughs> mm. I hated it. Why do you Spicy. hate America? <laughs> Why are you burning the flag? Becky, put that flag up. I wasn't as offended by it as Armageddon, which is a similar kind of vibe. What a double feature that would be. But I just thought it was so dumb. Just dumb moment after dumb moment. There isn't a moment of truth in this movie where somebody oh, yeah. would act if this were actually happening. Like, not a moment does anybody act genuinely. Yeah, there aren't human characters in this movie. (laughs) No, there aren't. (laughs) There also aren't alien characters, but still. (laughs) I came into it thinking, meh, it probably won't be for me these days, but maybe it'll 
be fun to watch. No, I did not have fun <laughs> watching this. I It was a chore to get through. I mean, we'll go more into details about. But I felt like even like Will Smith, and he's in two of the movies we're going to be talking about in these episodes. And I liked Fresh Prince a lot. And I do think he's a good actor. But watching old Will Smith in like, you know, the movies that are some of his like peaks of his career. This is the one that made him like a movie yeah. star. Yes. His shtick got real grating on me. No spoilers for Men in Black, but I didn't find anything he said very charming or funny. Like he didn't win me over at all in this movie, which I actually was surprised by because I genuinely would say that I like him. And I just was like, it was just getting real old. And maybe that's the writing. Oh, I agree with that. And I do think it's the writing. Like we come up with our host most likely to, where we kind of take a quote usually from one of those movies, not having rewatched it in forever. I was like hoping for great, really funny one-liners. And even the ones that I kind of half remembered were way less funny and clever than I remembered them being. And it was surprising to me because again, like there just was not really anything for him to hang his hat on in this movie, like, dialogue-wise at yeah. all to me. Well, like, one of the quotes that sticks out to me from this movie, like, when you say, like, what's a line from Independence Day? It's, I've got to get me one of these. I Yeah, I can right. hear it in my head. But, like, that's not a good or funny line. It's just that his delivery is good. Like, he, yeah. he sells yeah. those kinds of lines, like, better than I think most people could. But, yeah, I was, like, even, like, as we think about, like, episode titles or things that, yeah, we would, like, say, that doesn't work out of like his delivery. It's not like a line that's well written on its own. Mm -hmm. You know, this was supposed to be my weekend off. I knew you got me out here dragging your heavy ass through the burning desert with your dreadlocks sticking out the back of my parachute. You gotta come down here with an attitude, hacking all big and bad. And what the hell is that smell? I could have been at a barbecue! But I ain't mad. It's all right. That is all right. I did always want to name um, a sketch team Welcome to Earth Punch. (laughs) Except (laughs) watching this, the punch comes before he says Welcome to Earth. So it wouldn't make any sense. Punch Welcome to Earth? It doesn't flow as well. That's true. (laughs) Chris, what did you think? (laughs) I like Twister. Hashtag justice for Twister. Hashtag no. episode one of our podcast. <laughs> you guys hadn't seen this since theaters, right? Um, Correct. I owned it growing okay. up, so I saw it a few times after, but not in years. I had not seen it since like my teen years until a year ago. And then as COVID happened, I had this craving to watch movies that depicted like a global, like people reacting to a global event and um, this was, I think, like, relatively cheap on iTunes. So I was like, let's put this on. So I watched it, like, a year ago. So I was very primed for what my reaction to Intimate Day was going to be. And especially a year ago, I was like, that was fun. You know, that was a solid, like, afternoon watch, especially, like, when everything was closed. It was, like, April of 2020. So I was like, I got nothing better to do. Like, <laughs> Independence Day did perfect. We were all still bleaching our groceries at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, we were so dumb then. (laughs) We're so much smarter now. (laughs) 
This is not a movie that I needed to see like a year after I had just watched it. I do still like it in general as like an action movie that is like a little bit of comfort food. It entertains me. There's enough moments that I like and remember. And I like the characters are fine. I've had worse. I've had better, <laughs> but I've had worse. So there's enough there that it like entertains me, but it also would be better if I like waited like a few more years. Like, a movie like Twister, I could watch like fairly soon after I just watched it. It's not that kind of movie. It's like a every five years, maybe I'll I'll put on Independence Day. It's long, two and a it's half really hours. Long. It does not need to be two and a half hours. Yeah, well, that's what struck me about this movie this time that I didn't pick up on when I was a kid because I hadn't really seen um, any of the predecessors to this movie, but it's really modeled after, like one of the reviews said, the 70s disaster epics, which are so long. That's true. The Towering Inferno is like three hours long. Poseidon Adventure, I think, is like two and a half. All these movies are so long. And like this movie, like have some big set pieces, but have very, very long and intricate like character stories that especially like take up like the first usually like hour of the movie at least i went back home to visit my mom during the holidays in covid and like stayed for a while and so one of the things we did is we watched all those disaster movies so i have recently seen the towering inferno poseidon adventure do you like them yeah they're fun Well, and I think another point of difference here is that this really isn't an ensemble movie like so many of those big disaster movies were. Like, so many of those were, like, ensemble movies, and at least a couple of the other movies we'll be discussing are are really ensemble pictures where you're following a lot of different characters and a lot of different main storylines. So if any individual one of the story threads is a little bit weaker or they get the rhythm a bit off, then it can, you know, proceed to the next character and move on to the next story. But with this, it's just all hanging on Will Smith and CGI and Jeff Goldblum. Well, it's like a little bit of an ensemble, but it is definitely smaller than a lot of those movies. And those were very star-studded movies, and there's not very many... Like, even Will Smith was not that big of a star. Like, they're big enough to, like, you know, sell this movie, but this movie was sold on, like, the concept and special effects. It wasn't stars. And, yeah, there's basically, like, three kinds of sets of characters, and I thought it was funny. Like, DC is represented by the president and, like, the people with him. New York is represented by a brilliant scientist, and L.A. is represented by a stripper. Off of that, I <laughs> what I wasn't expecting that I got from this viewing was that this movie has, like, issues with women as yeah. such. <laughs> so the movie yeah. starts with an important science guy. Please excuse the fact that I don't remember their names or their positions. They flash on screen for yeah. you. <laughs> but, like, something alieny is going on and, <laughs> and the the guy in charge is sleeping and he picks up the phone and he's like if this isn't a beautiful woman i'm hanging up and yep. that was one of the first lines in the movie sets the tone and that set the tone where i was like hmm you know like little red flag <laughs> and then the one of the first lines we get from the president who is not currently like the first lady is somewhere else and they're on the phone and she says something like, oh, are you alone there? And he's like, no, I'm in bed with a beautiful brunette. And it's his daughter, who's Mae Whitman. <laughs> I thought that was cute. Her? <laughs> yeah. But it was just like another thing. It's like, these are the first lines we're getting from yeah. these characters. And it's, it was very close together. And it was just like, okay, I guess this is what all men are 
thinking all the time. Just even the fucking president is also thinking that, okay. And then one of the main characters is a stripper. Why does she have to be a stripper? At no point is she like going down a pole in a fancy way to like get to the aliens. Like there's no skill set But that would have been a, a scene. <laughs> that would have been a scene. There's no reason. And the only thing I can think of is that there's like a juxtaposition when she's with the first lady. And it's like, oh, the first lady and a stripper together hanging out. Well, it also serves as something for Harry Connick Jr. to say. This was one of the big notes I wrote about this. There is a a quote where, like, Harry Connick Jr. sees the wedding ring on Will Smith's finger, or the engagement ring, I guess, Mm -hmm. on on Will Smith's finger. Or he's going to propose. He sees the ring for Jasmine. That's right. And Will Smith's, like, building up to do the proposal. So Harry Connick Jr. sees the ring on his finger and says, Stevie, this is a wedding ring. I thought you said you were going to break the whole thing off. Man, you know I really like Jasmine. You know that, right? But man, you're never going to get to fly the space shuttle if you marry a stripper. Yeah, why do they give a shit if she's a stri- like, what? It makes absolutely no sense even putting on 90s goggles. Like, it's just fucking sexist. But, like, why? Just so fucking sexist. She explains this. It's good money and her baby is worth it. I was just like, this movie's just strange with women. Well, but also, again, a competent screenwriter could have had a female character who is a stripper for a living and have that be a thing that helps them reveal character and that builds them dramatically as, you know, making them feel like a human character in a drama. And there's just not even any attempts at that in this movie. The issue with Will Smith, whether he's going to propose or not, because that's the issue, is that he won't get promoted. Right. But, like, that never seems to be an issue in the movie. It's It never is. Yeah. But it, it only, it literally only exists to diminish her, to diminish her dignity and standing as a person. Yeah. I don't have... A comment, no. (laughs) But say nothing. I hear what you're saying. I don't think there's really that much of a purpose. I think what they're going for is like, this is all kinds of different people. We've got the first lady and we've got a stripper. Like the (laughs) 70s movies that would have like people from all walks of life. But yeah, I mean, I don't. But also it's like, this this is really where for me, Becky, what you mentioned at the top of the episode really started to come into play and where I really saw it so clearly. Especially this movie out of all four of these is so much about the restoration of not just American dominance as like a military power, but also the restoration of the heterosexual nuclear family. Yeah. Um, where like this story is literally the story of Will Smith's character trying to get back to this woman so like he can make a family with her and like make her an honest woman quote unquote I don't know to what extent I, I picked up on any of this on in any of these movies as a kid but especially now it's just blaring from every single corner of the screen for the whole movie please respect America please hold America like number one in your heart as the most badass and manly and uh, you know conquering of nations I noticed that too toward the end there's a shot that just seems kind of strange of like Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith are returning from their mission and both of the women run up and like jump into their arms which I feel like is like in character for the stripper sorry Jasmine her name she has a name (laughs) played very well I think by Vivica A. Fox played really well yeah actually played as well as could be Yeah. yeah but then like the bigger story kind of is like Jeff Goldblum and his ex wife who is, I think, director of communications for the president, played by Margaret Colin, who I actually think is really good in this movie, too, um, to the extent that anyone can be really good in this movie. And I like her a lot. And like she was one of the characters that always like stood out to me as 
as a favorite in here, and I don't really know that actress very well. But it's weird, like, you know, it's just, like, she's not, like, a, like, girly girl kind of character. Like, she's, like, a very serious, like, a professional. And to see her just, like, at the end, just, like, jump into the guy's arms, too, it was very, like, oh, okay, like, I guess that's what this movie is, is just, like... Mm -hmm. You know, we lost, like, millions of lives, but I guess it's okay because these people aren't divorced anymore. Like, yeah. it's a very 90s thing. Like, 90s were obsessed with divorce, and, like, Twister had it. Mm. Did it better, I think, than this. Like, it, it doesn't so feel as better. necessary <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. And you're also, like, Seth, talking about, like, the machismo of the movie, which I enjoy it more here than I do in a lot of later movies i think because it's like it's a little more subtle here it's like it's there it's definitely there yeah i thought about armageddon a lot during this and i i hate armageddon this is like armageddon light i i do like armageddon in a like in a knowing like i know what's wrong with it way but yes i also like never made quite that connection of just like how much michael bay basically stole his entire style from this movie like he had done like i think the rock was like maybe the year before this so it was like that wasn't armageddon that was like it was Mm -hmm. obviously very like testosterone driven but it wasn't and then everything afterwards was like (laughs) I mean, this movie opens with, like, the title literally, like, exploding yeah, at you. that was pretty funny. <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> it was so stupid. And then opens on the moon there- on an American flag. That is the first image we yeah. see. Is there really a plaque on the moon? Is there a plaque? I'm sure Americans love little more than we love plaques and flags. <laughs> yeah. So you can be guaranteed there's a fucking plaque. There's probably a bowling trophy somewhere. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin just got drunk and left a bowling trophy on the moon, too. I'm sure. Yeah, so it was just like, it's this macho nostalgia for the moon landing in this case, and just like, it really seizes that early on. And not just that, but specifically a nostalgia for how how triumphant America was during that whole Cold War period. Again, it's like the space race was a consequence of how much this country uparmed for the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that, you know, we'll hit on in all of these movies, but I first actually got into learning about politics through trying to research about UFOs and conspiracies and government cover-ups of UFO stuff. And this was the first movie that I ever saw that mentioned, much less depicted, Area 51 as a real mm. thing. Mm. You know what that means? Fallout. Your nuclear winter? It's the end of life as we know it. Do you hear what they're talking about? Don't even think about it. I don't have to go. It can't be allowed. Shut up! Get him out of here! Hey, hey, don't tell him to shut up! You'd all be dead now if it wasn't my David. None of you did anything to prevent this. There was nothing we could do. We were totally unprepared for this. Ah! Don't give me unprepared. Come on, Julie. It was what, in the 1950s or whatever? You you had that uh, spaceship. Take my word for it. There's no Area 51. <laughs> There's no recovered spaceship. Oh, excuse me, Mr. President. That's not entirely accurate. And, of course, uh, as we've discussed in many 
ways and shades on this podcast. I was very much a sci-fi and UFO nerd. So it was super exciting for me as a kid to like see Area 51 represented as this real thing. But part of what was so fascinating about rewatching this movie and all these movies now is I've learned so much through learning about politics, the extent to which the military industrial complex in America used and shaped the UFO phenomenon in pop culture as a way of justifying the arms race, as a way of justifying America's endless military escalation. It's come out in the past decade or so that Area 51 was actually like the specific U.S. military base where the stealth bomber, a lot of the different spy planes and armed drones that have become part of American warfare, you know, throughout our whole lives, where those things were first tested. So a lot of those UFO crash landings like in Roswell in 1947... A lot of those pivotal moments that have defined what aliens mean in America, and especially when aliens mean a dangerous threat, those were actually cover-ups of U.S. military tests and U.S. military experiments. Yeah, that's funny because I actually think the Area 51 stuff is some of the best stuff in this movie. I do too. Cleverest. I do too. um, To use something that's actually real and kind of base it on plot, you know, how we learn more about the aliens at that point in the movie is clever. And I think that's one of the best sequences is when the alien attacks the scientists. um. Played by Brent Spiner, who was Data in Star Trek The Next Mm -hmm. Generation. (laughs) We'll get to him. I want to talk about him a little bit more. Yeah, we should. The military was going to back this movie and like give Independence Day like money and and planes and access to everything, but they were like, you have to take Area Fifty One out of the script, <sighs> and they refused to do it. So at least that was a good call because I think it works well in the movie. I like Tiffany, the stripper, Jasmine's friend. She's one of oh. my favorite characters. <laughs> I figured you would. Yeah, she's quirky. She's like the one that you see. Like her face is all blue as she's like looking up into the like ship as it's about to blow up L.A. The actress is very unique looking. Mm -hmm. Wait, was she like the hippie who thinks that they're going to bring back Elvis? Yeah. Okay, I actually did like her. (laughs) I neglected to learn her name, and I apologize for that. Well, you could have just guessed, and yes, it's (laughs) Tiffany. Fair enough, fair enough. Guys, the strippers in this movie have inner lives and names. (laughs) I would have watched a whole Tiffany spinoff of like her experience. Mm -hmm. I also like Harvey Firestein in this movie. I love him. There are three Jews in this movie. It's a very what, Jewish movie. What about movie? that, guys? It is. Three Jews. I'll give props where props are due. That's a mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> in a movie directed by like a German guy, and I, it's, it's an interest. It's like an interesting. It is thing. genuinely pretty interesting. And actually, now that you mention it, this was one of the very first movies that I remember like seeing in a theater and thinking afterward, like. Hmm, that's interesting. Like, there were characters in this movie who were, like, Jewish and practicing Jewish and, like, talked about their religion, their own religious beliefs and practices in a way that I genuinely don't think I saw yeah. in any other movies that were contemporary. Especially yeah. not, like, big blockbusters. It's an American tale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this. That's it. Which was the working title for this. <laughs> <laughs> a Jewish film treasury. An American tale. <laughs> there are no aliens in America. <laughs> I have a complaint against this movie, but I this I don't think is the movie's fault. It's not fun to watch New York City explode mm-hmm. after 9-11. And I think while watching that very iconic sequence where, you know, not just New York, there's also like the White House and other places around the world. 
I remember when people were looking at the footage from 9-11 and kind of being in shock that it wasn't a movie. And Independence Day was, what, five years? Mm-hmm. Something like that. So it wasn't a recent movie, but it was recent enough that people... I remember we're saying like, oh my God, it looks like something out of Independence Day. And even this far removed from 9-11, like what is it, 20 years? I still don't find it fun to watch this destruction of famous buildings, millions of people dying, particularly in New York where, you know, that event took place. But just like the idea of finding glee because this movie wants you to be exhilarated by this and at the end of the movie it's very triumphant like oh we won millions of people died and I just like I can't not connect it to that event in real history I'm not having fun while watching it yeah I mean I definitely noticed that too like you see the twin towers a couple times in like the New York City skyline so it's weird you know you don't I don't think you actually see them like as part of the destruction but it is like and, and in some of these other movies too I think you see them and it's just it's always like off-putting to see them you never like see them and just don't think about that like this movie doesn't bother me in that respect as much as some do but i agree that in general it's not very fun to watch that anymore Uh, my biggest issue is with like the movies that came after this like 2012 and uh, like the same director as this one there are a lot of like san andreas like a lot of these movies are still being made and even like most of them destroying bigger, like, more and more things, and with less and less actually, like, depicting the kind of human suffering that that would be. I feel like this movie does, like, kind of so-so on that. There's at least enough of showing, like, humans horrified and, like, in peril that, like, I feel like you feel some of the weight of that. I get what you mean, because the Twin Towers specifically and their destruction has an emotional weight to it that no other one landmark could or would or has. So I get it, especially as someone from New York. It's not fun to watch that. I don't agree with you that the movie's trying to derive glee from that. I don't think it's I don't think it's shown as any kind of a comical thing. Well, I don't know about comical. I just mean like those sections, of course, they want you to be like blown <laughs> blown away. Like wowed. You know, it's not funny, but But I think but a, the I movie- think it's supposed to be horrifying. I think it's supposed to be horrifying to people. Like, I, I think that's the point of it. And I think that's why they choose to blow up the White House. Like, I think that is like a singularly totemic place and space in the American consciousness. And in a way, I think that like blowing up the White House would be the only thing I could like imagine and come up with off the top of my head that would be like an equivalent to blowing up the World Trade Center directly, you know? I don't think the movie treats it as lightly as you think it does. Interesting. Um, Like, this is actually making me, like, consider this in a way that I don't know that I ever would have before, because I agree with Becky that, like, those scenes are supposed to be entertaining. Those were what the movie was sold on, and obviously, like, in a way, it is supposed to be fun. But in another way, it is horrifying, and, like, it's horrifying in the way that horror movies are horrifying, where you identify with the victims and you're kind of like oh my god if that happened that would be so like horrible and like but you still go to horror movies to be kind of entertained and like to like kind of vicariously live that experience right and by seeing something that you don't expect to ever see happen i think that's part of it too yeah. is that yeah cuz you don't think you don't think anybody's going to blow up the white house right so in a way it is fun to see that happen as a fantasy but because in real life we saw iconic buildings destroyed and you know the ash and like we we like just saw what the reality of those situations are and it's horrible like you know 
to the extreme. Um, And that was only with a couple thousand deaths. Yeah. And that was in one, only one section of New York, but still like that alone has like shaped our reality for decades. And in our entire adulthoods. Yeah. That, (laughs) Uh, that like watching this and again, this is, I don't think this is the movie's fault because they could not know what was going to happen. They just wanted to make something fun and entertaining and, and like with a wow factor. But looking back, like, I don't get any fun feelings from those scenes because it just seems so tied to things that I have seen with my own eyes. Like, I mean, I wasn't there, but you know what I mean? Like through, yeah. you know, uh, TV and stuff. And yeah, I just like couldn't get out of my head, <laughs> which is not what the filmmakers wanted. They didn't want you to be like, oh, in five years, like this is going to take on a whole new meaning, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. And I think this movie gets like a like passing grade on like, like later in the movie weighing that destruction and like, kind of saying something about like the lives lost but also like it could have done more where I think that would have felt a little bit more cathartic instead of just like they kind of forget about it like and it it would be incredibly horrifying to actually have like these three cities completely destroyed like that would be mind-blowingly like awful you know so like I don't think this movie totally like glides past it but I also have seen it done better and worse in different movies. So it's like, I feel like this one's kind of in the middle of like how well it does that. Yeah. And again, I think a lot of that goes back to just incompetence in the screenwriting. Cause like one of the few moments I thought in this that kind of dramatically grounded me in the moment and kind of like helped build suspense was when the dog jumps to safety. <laughs> oh God, we're going to talk about that now. You like that? You liked that moment? I did kind of like it's so it's super cheesy. It's super cheesy, but I I, I pointed it out because <laughs> I thought it was one of the only times the movie even attempted to connect an actual sense of like suspense and danger to the individual characters. Oh boy, because otherwise it just feels like the disaster is like uh, abstractly happening to them and not like directly yeah. happening to them all the um, time. My note for that moment was this is the dumbest moment in a fucking dumb movie. Again, I'm not saying it's not incredibly <laughs> stupid. I'm saying this is one of the few times they tried. <laughs> yeah, well, we gotta talk about the dog. Um, of course we do. Boomer. He boomer. has a name. He has an inner life. <laughs> okay, okay, Boomer. He's More also dog. a stripper. <laughs> he is also a dog stripper. <laughs> Dogs can be strippers too, you guys. What does that mean? He takes his collar off? (laughs) Yeah, baby. (laughs) Takes the flea collar off. That's five extra. I mean, I do agree that it's a moment of like actual, like tangible danger that you don't feel because most of the most of the characters either die that we see in those moments or are like safe enough that we're not really that worried about them. And there are no babies in danger, so we gotta yeah. have puppies in danger. But it's not filmed very well. It's so, it's so hilariously silly. I, think I laughed. It was one of my few good laughs in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie in a while or maybe never have seen it at all, Jasmine and her young son are in the car in a tunnel in Los Angeles and they see the big explosion slowly making its way through this tunnel. And they have time, of course, to like get out of the car and out basically outrun fire. <laughs> Fine. Everyone else is running forward and presumably toward their doom. Jasmine gets the idea to go into a maintenance closet that they see on the sidelines and and kicks the door open. So uh, maybe that's a stripper skill that she learned. Um, (laughs) High kicks. So maybe you're wrong. (laughs) 
But they have forgotten the dog in the car who's just waiting in the car. And so they're in a maintenance closet that is like, I don't know, five feet deep. It's not that deep. The door is open. <laughs> she calls the, for the dog, Boomer. Boomer hears and like runs and it's slow-mo. And then he like jumps in front of a cloud of fire That's right. into the closet. And they're all okay. Like, I'm like... Fire can't go, like, sideways into a door. Like Dogs are fireproof. <laughs> Roland Emmerich does the same fucking thing in the day after tomorrow, it's but true. with ice. Yeah, and wolves. And Don't wolves. forget wolves. Because, <laughs> you know, when the apocalypse comes, wolves are what you're really worried about. Yeah, th- there's a lot of that. Like, because the plane also, the President's Air Force One, like, flies up, and there's, like, so much fire, like, coming at it. Like, it feels like the plane is on fire. And I'm like, if a plane was that close to fire it would catch on fire or you know melt or what explode i'm like it <laughs> the effects are a little bit too, like they cut it a little too close with how believable and that same with the dog is like that dog would be toast <laughs> like i don't mind the dog moment in theory but like i want it to like look like the dog could have actually survived that and it looks like they all would have been fried and then like after it too it's like she comes out of that and it's like the maintenance closet is the only thing standing and like entire buildings are flattened like everything is in (laughs) rubble maintenance closet maintenance closets are the black boxes of tunnels It's weird. I mean, it's just like it, it's dumb. It is dumb. It they is didn't dumb. try hard enough to make this. Yeah, it's not believable at any moment. No. So I don't care what happens to anybody because I don't believe anybody's going through these things. And that's why this movie is so boring to me. It was just such a drag to get to the end because I didn't care about anybody. These people are just like stick figures. They're not like real people. What about Randy Quaid and his family? <laughs> Oh, God. I was wondering, how long did it take for us to get to the Quaid? Do me a favor. Tell my children I love them very much. All right, you alien assholes. In the words of my generation, up yours! Dad, what's he doing? Come on, Come on, baby, come on. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> Hello, boys. I'm Yeah, I'm convinced that in 1996, Randy Quaid was performing this character as 2021 Randy Quaid. Mm -hmm. This is just who Randy Quaid is now in real life. There's a director's cut of this movie that I own because it's part of the version that I bought. I didn't watch it this time because I wanted to get the experience you guys were having, but I did watch it a year ago. And pretty much everything that was cut was Randy Quaid and his family. Oh my God. (laughs) There's a lot more of them. (laughs) Really? Like him and his wannabe Keanu son. Because no one cares about that. Nobody cares about that. Keanu Reeves. I know. Yes. It's bad stuff. It's like, you're like, oh, you were right to cut this. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, like, the the rousing presidential speech. Um, Oh, what a moment, huh? What a moment. Especially, you know, Chris, learning what you said about kind of how the movie was pitched. There's more. There's more? There's more about that speech. So they wrote it once. Like, they were like, we need a, like, really big rousing speech here. And they wrote that speech and we're like, that doesn't really work. We'll come back to it later. And then they got to the shooting day. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, shit, we forgot to rewrite that scene. 
but like Bill Pullman like just like did the delivery and everyone like started applauding and cheering and they were like oh I guess it works fine so to the extent that it works it's like Bill Pullman Bill Pullman did it but they meant to like write a better speech he Pullman it off he did. I remember in the theater, people were applauding. Oh, yeah. Like, I there was remember applause. that. Yeah. There was genuine applause. It felt rousing at the time. Yeah. It yeah. did. No, it, it feels rousing, but especially in retrospect, really, for me, that moment capped off how much this movie is not really telling a story where all of humanity is at stake. Like, it really just feels like this movie is, like, the reputation of America is at stake and, like, the reputation of America's military is at stake. We'll touch on it in these other movies, but it really came through clearly to me in this movie how stories like this are not about any kind of collective efforts. Like, it's so chauvinistic and individualistic that these are stories about how the only possible future is like an escalating series of disasters. And the only way that we can ever have any hope of like collective survival is if the right individual men who are super gifted and super strong and super lucky individually get to the right point and place and time and save us all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's good. He is good. He's always good because he's Jeff Goldblum. I don't like him in this movie. Like, I don't hate him, but like, I don't know. His his character is so lefty that he rides his bike indoors. <laughs> like, just like little things like that, like, bothered me. <laughs> I don't know. He's also weird with his ex-wife about yeah. like, oh, you chose your career over me. And I'm like, she's in the fucking White House. Maybe that was a good call. Yeah. You Like, he's just so like bitchy toward her. Yeah, I didn't love him. Oh, and the, and him and his dad, like the it, it was that such cliche moment where the dad says something and he's like, "Say that thing again." Yeah. I was just like, "Oh god." <laughs> I like Jeff. I mean, he's doing Jurassic Park here, and it's definitely not as good. But it's still it's like pizza. Like even bad Jeff Goldblum is still Jeff Goldblum. Did, I Did you notice? I must go faster. Yes. Must go faster. <laughs> Oh, they're closing up on us. Is that closing? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Go faster. Must go faster. Must go faster. Go, 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 go! Oh, this has left the building! Oh, thank you very much. Oh. I don't know, I was like, am I making that up? That's a Jurassic <laughs> Park. Did I misattribute that? But no, he says it in both movies. I think it's also ADR because he's, I don't think he's on screen when he says it. Oh, really? So I think they're just like, let's put this in. It'll be funny. Like they just stole it directly from Jurassic Park. I also did think it was kind of fun that, you know, this is a movie where the the aliens uh, defenses and everything end up being overwhelmed by a computer virus. And that that's, that's what ultimately makes it possible to destroy them and not just bonds. Um, but again, it's like the moment that Jeff Goldblum like teams up with Will Smith. It's like Jeff Goldblum's like an honorary member of the military and he like is wearing the fatigues and everything. So yeah. it kind of just all ends up being like these one or two people in the military are the only ones who can possibly save us. That's true. They're in like a fighter jet. Yeah. I feel like Randy Quaid in this movie, like his character actually just had a gay night, like when he was really drunk and is in denial. Cause like, Oh, cause he keeps saying he was abducted. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like he, cause I don't think the movie really treats it that seriously that he was abducted. Yeah. I also didn't like that by this time I'd watched enough X-Files that like there are a lot of episodes of that and story arcs where people's abduction experiences are taken relatively seriously or they aren't until they get abducted again and it's like it it doesn't even attempt to give him that kind of grace or character 
So Brent Spiner, we could go back to him really quickly, just because I think that that character really, like, when I think of this movie, that's one of the first things. And he's so, like, gross. and the guy so gross. The crazy gray hair, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, really yeah. good, like, costume design and, like, makeup and everything. Just, like, Great. getting him, like, Great. getting this, like, greasy kind of, like, kind of, like, pedophile-ish scientist. But he's been, thankfully he's been underground for decades, so we couldn't groom anyone. Yeah, and I think that scene is genuinely creepy when, like, the alien has its tentacle wrapped around him and he's, like, speaking through him. I know there is much we can learn from each other if we can negotiate a truce. We can find a way to coexist. Can there be a peace between us? What is it you want us to do? wanted to like that more than I did. I felt I felt like what was being said was stupid. The premise of that scene like is not stupid, but I thought they're like what do you want? Die. Yeah, <laughs> I actually totally agree with you. And it was actually his character especially in Area 51 like I said earlier were like the things that like stood out the most that I remembered the most and I wanted to really love that sequence. And I I love like conceptually I love that moment where like it wraps the tentacles around and takes them over, but what he says is so fucking dumb. Yes. No peace. No peace. Oh, so stupid. I mean, I can't quite disagree because I do feel like, I mean, I guess that's the whole thing is that they just come and they're like pretty obvious about that they're going to. Uh, well, but that brings me to another thing. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> because like these big ass ships show up <laughs> and everyone is like in awe of them, but they like position themselves like over the White House. And I'm like, I think I know what's going to happen Can here. Can you not connect the dots? And like, oh they don't leave. God. Oh my God. There's a moment where the alien spacecrafts are like hovering in the White House, hovering wherever. And Jeff Goldblum calls his ex-wife and he's like, they're going to attack us. They're going to attack us. And she's like, you're paranoid. And like hangs up. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. excuse me. <laughs> <You're>, what? <laughs> also, also, might some paranoia not be justifiable in the presence of 15 mile wide spaceships? I don't know. I don't know. Just asking questions. How do the aliens know what is the most important building in each city? Because it's not the tallest building in each city, but they know exactly like, we'll go to the White House, not the Capitol, not the Washington Monument. It's Wikipedia. There was no Wikipedia back then. But maybe alien Wikipedia. (laughs) They have their own Wikipedia written by their individual aliens who are fact-checked diligently. You know what I was thinking about a lot during this movie was the movie Arrival with Amy Adams and how good that movie is. Interesting, yeah. And how I feel like, and this is a whole other podcast, that movie is very smart and clever about the things it does with the aliens and how I think those alien spaceships are like in the middle of fucking nowhere because they wouldn't know where the president lives. Right. (laughs) You know, like, it's just like, just things like that where I kept being like, oh, I want to watch Arrival again and see how how a smart movie does. I want to watch an invasion movie that has characters in it. That might yeah. be fun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, this time what stood out to me was like how much this movie just borrows from a lot of other movies. Little Star Wars with the, like the little like laser oh my God. spaceships. The the like fighting through the yeah. canyons. That was straight Thank out you. of Star Wars. Yeah. Alien, like the like scary alien scenes are basically like yep. alien. Absolutely. A lot of Spielberg, like people staring up in wonder. And a lot of Spielberg jokes, like there's E.T. and Close Encounters jokes that Will Smith tells. Well, he does a lot of alien movies, so. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Watch those instead. <laughs> Watch literally any of them. And I also, I just had problems. I'm like, why are the aliens so slow? Like they, why do they have a countdown that's like seven hours when they're over, they get in position and then they're like, well, we'll wait seven hours and then we'll blow everything up. They take so long to do it and then clearly make no efforts whatsoever to conceal themselves. But that doesn't help build suspense either because we're not seeing the aliens being like, ha, 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 they have no idea what we're going to do. That's what was cut out. That's and that would have like stuff. helped like, why don't they leave? Right. Like, there's no reason why it needs to be, like, six hours later. I I guess maybe so Jeff Goldblum can, like, get to DC, but that's the only reason. I have to say the best part of this movie is the design of the spaceships. Yeah. Like, I was just looking at the poster recently, and it's, like, the White House and the giant ship. And it is very striking. Like, it is very... it, it's very uniquely designed and there's just so many little intricate little things and I feel like it's very iconic like if you showed that to me it'd be like that's the Independence Day ship especially how it comes in like and it's concealed by clouds I think that's a very like ominous image yeah definitely I think the sequence where the ships arrive and like everyone's reacting is genuinely like really good and I one of the reasons that. this movie works but the alien themselves like the effects are not very good no. like when they actually show the alien they're like they look very like puppety yeah, very puppety. And and again, it's like they're not characters in the movie at all. Yeah, I feel like this movie, like, the story is really good. There, It has, like, all the, like, the storyboard is good. Like, I feel like if you gave yes. this to Ridley Scott, like, he'd, he would have done a little bit more with this. But it's like, Roland Emmerich, like, we've, you know, seen many of his other movies and learned that he's not a masterful director. Or storyteller. <laughs> I think you put it perfectly. Like, it looks like good storyboards. It looks like really great storyboards. And the script is kind of like that, too. Is like, you could rewrite this script and, like, not have to really change the scenes that much. But you just need, like, better dialogue and, like, slightly more, like, plausible things. So that will bring us to our next in-depth discussion on Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> oh, thank no! you. <laughs> no, I feel misled. We did not watch that movie. I, I think we... Literally did not watch that movie, right? No one no. has seen it? Nope. I didn't know it was a movie until I was searching on IMDb. Is it known as ID4 too? I don't know. <laughs> no, it was like, it was the first search result for Independence Day. I'm just like, yeah. what the fuck is this? By all accounts, this movie is terrible. It sounds terrible. Um, the scientist guy, like Brent Spiner, is alive in it and a, and a major character. Oh, no. Because uh, they couldn't get Will Smith. They could not get Will Smith. <laughs> Will Smith has been starring in some junk lately, and he didn't star in this. Yeah, yeah, he was in Bright. He I said thought. yes to Bright and not that. I'm honestly very surprised Jeff Goldblum said yes to this. Oh, that's a shame. And they did not cast Mae Whitman no. <laughs> as the president's daughter. The president's daughter grew up to be a working actress who is very good, and they recast her as uh, Mika Monroe, who is also a good actress, but... But hot. But hot. <laughs> <laughs> Nope. The real movie we're about to talk about is more of a comedic take on this whole alien attack thing. That would be Mars Attacks. Why be enemies? Because we're different? Is that why? Think of the things that we could do. Think how strong we would be. 
Earth and Mars together. There is nothing that we could not accomplish. Think about it. Think about it. Why destroy when you can create? We can have it all. Or we can smash it all. Why can't we work out our differences? Why can't we work things out? Little people. Why can't we all just get along? It was released December 13th, 1996, directed by one Tim Burton, written by Jonathan Gems, starring everyone. <laughs> Literally everyone. You're in this movie. I'm in this movie. <laughs> everyone was available and everyone said yes. All right. I'm going to read the cast list. <laughs> Do we need to get you an oxygen tank? <gasps> Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Annette Bening, Pierce Brosnan, Sarah Jessica Parker, Danny DeVito, Natalie Portman, Martin Short, Michael J. Fox, Rod Steiger, Pam Greer, Lucas Haas, Christina Applegate, Jack Black, Sylvia Sidney, and Tom Jones. <laughs> and you forgot to list Jack Nicholson for a second time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. We'll get to that. The film, like most movies, was based on the Topps bubblegum card... <laughs> series from 1962. Chris, you're a card, sir. <laughs> this was a series of 55 cards released in 1962. Examples of the cards include one which showed a giant insect decapitating a naked woman in a shower. Okay. Another featured a dog being vaporized right in front of its owner, a small child. <laughs> pretty, like, extreme stuff for 1962. Yeah, that's pretty edgy. Uh, outrage happened <laughs> and the cards were discontinued that year but they retained a cult following up until they were reissued in the 80s one of the cards now is worth like $3,600 so if you got your Mars Attacks cards you might want to cash them in Tim Burton was developing his Ed Wood biopic when uh, he was pitched this movie and he thought it would be a fun way to pay homage to B-movie sci-fi auteurs like Ed Wood you can definitely tell that that spirit is, is in here <laughs> absolutely the first draft was submitted to Warner Brothers, uh, budgeted at $260 million. <laughs> Warner Brothers said that that was a little too much. <laughs> Even Independence Day was, what, 70 or something? 70, yeah. That's amazing. So, like, four Independence Days. <laughs> I'll take four ID4s, please. ID16, ID me. <laughs> Tim Burton's pitch. They were like, how about $60 million? Which, honestly, is still a lot of movie for, like, a cheeky comedy. The original draft that was $260 million had the White House, the Empire State Building, and many other landmarks being destroyed by aliens, cut for budget. There were 60 characters originally, cut down to 23. Wow. Uh, Tim Burton wanted all the alien effects to look as cheap and fake as possible. Uh, he originally planned hmm. to do the alien stop motion. But you can kind of tell by yeah. just the way that they're designed. Even when they switched it to CGI, he had them like do it so that it would look like stop motion. And so it does. In 1982, Howard Stern did a sketch on an NBC radio show called Slim Whitman versus Midget Aliens from Mars. <laughs> I'm going to play a clip of that. Dad, yeah, it! what fool would be calling me at a time like this here? You know, this is Slim Whitman's stepfather. Hello, guess who this is? Give me a hint. Okay, 
Knock, knock. Who's there? President. President who? President Reagan. President Reagan requested the services of Slim Whitman. His piercing yodel could be the only noise to crack the eardrums of the midget aliens. So the climax of Mars Attacks does actually feature Slim Whitman's music being responsible for saving the world from the aliens. Mm-hmm. So Because Howard, it shatters their heads. Yeah. So Howard Stern called Tim Burton out and said, uh, this was my idea. Didn't sue because he's not that kind of guy, I mm-hmm. guess. But I think that's too much to be a full-on coincidence. That doesn't seem possible. I've been a stand-up comedy nerd and fanatic for many decades now. And with jokes, there are very specific joke premises and punchlines and all of that that occur to different people at different times or sometimes occur to different people at the same time. On paper, it is such a specific thing. It's the same artist, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the part that... Yeah. But Slim Whitman had a super distinctive piercing yodeling voice. So, like, if you were going to reach for a country singer, like, you wouldn't reach for, like, Peggy Lee to be able to do something like that or something. So, who knows? Only Tim Burton can answer this, and he'll have to answer it to our Lord. (laughs) We have a lot of pressing questions for Tim Burton before we get to this one. More important questions. That list is long before we get to that. The final budget of this film was $80 million, plus quite a marketing budget, so it was expensive. Does anyone have any idea if this, like, grossed more or less than Independence Day? I mean, everything grossed <laughs> less than Independence Day. It was a hit, though. No. It no, wasn't. No. I remember this movie definitely, like, not being oh. It was a crash landing in Roswell and everywhere else. <laughs> oh. It was $37.8 million domestic. <gasps> Holy shit, I didn't know that. So, like, 101 million worldwide, which did not justify all this. (laughs) It opened at number two behind Jerry Maguire. Uh, It was the number 60 movie of 1996. Wow. Not what they were hoping for. The reviews uh, for this one were similarly mixed as Independence Day. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly, again, said, Mars Attacks may be the first sci-fi disaster movie that's also an impish black comedy prank. In Burton's giddily satiric epic... Alien invaders want to destroy the planet, but it wouldn't be right to say that they're aiming for world domination. They're more like demonic jesters out for a cosmic giggle. And Burton, the maniacal pop fantasist, is on their side. So he he liked the movie. Yeah. However, Rita Kempley of the Washington Post... <laughs> God, it's the Rita podcast. <laughs> on a Rita double beat. ...was not a fan. She says, In his last movie, Tim Burton celebrated the world's worst filmmaker, Ed Wood, in his newest, Mars Attacks. He seems to have become Ed Wood. Truth be told, the legendary Schlockmeister's Plan 9 from Outer Space is a better bad B-movie than this sour and pointless parody. Wow. Sassy Rita. Seriously, Rita got out the knives for this Why are we tweeting Rita, like, constantly? We gotta do some tweet of Rita. I have been. (laughs) (laughs) I have to stop paying attention. (laughs) No, I I haven't been. So, did you guys see MA4? (laughs) Back in the day? I saw Mars Attacks multiple times in multiple theaters. Multiple times in theaters? Multiple times. How much of this movie's gross are you responsible <laughs> for, personally? <laughs> I'm learning how much more I was responsible for than I even imagined. But yeah, I, I saw this movie in theaters multiple times, and it was... By this point, I had started watching Monty Python, 
And when I first started watching Monty Python stuff, I was like, oh God, this is my like ideal sense of humor, that kind of absurdity and also like very broad comedy, lots of physical comedy, especially like comically absurd things um, I really loved at this stage in my life. And so, yeah, I absolutely saw this in theaters multiple times. I don't know if I ever went like with friends and like took friends to see it. I think I mostly just conned my family into seeing it. What about y'all though? I'm I'm curious because clearly not many people saw this. (laughs) I was a huge Burton fan, particularly like Right before this movie was like Batman, Batman Returns, Nine Before Christmas, Ed Wood, like Beetlejuice. Like, I loved all of that. So I definitely saw this movie in theaters. I didn't care for it much then. I I gotta say, I, I was a little thrown off. It's not exactly like everything that was before. Still very much Burton esque, but not exactly what I was expecting. But I don't even think I owned it. I owned a lot. You did. <laughs> but I I don't think I own this on VHS. Good pass on that one. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And had you seen it um since like Nope. Okay. And but you had, Seth? I must have watched it on cable at least like once or twice in the intervening decades. Um but again, it wasn't really a movie I like actively sought out a lot. And it's and it's not a movie I've like purchased on any other format or anything. I also saw this in theater, so we we did Tim Burton right, as so You're much welcome. of America did him wrong. You're welcome, Tim. It felt like a must-see movie. It was around the holidays, so it had that kind of, like, counter-prestige factor of, like, mm-hmm. this must be, like, an important movie if it's opening, like, in December. I think some combination of, like, the like because Independence Day was such a phenomenon, and this was clearly, like, aping that a little bit, and the cast was just, like, insane. It kind of felt like you had to see it. I also did not really care for this film when I saw it. In theaters the tone was just not for me i don't think i quite understood the tone because it does ride a fine line of kind of being serious and being comedic like it's not as wacky as you might think it's like an insanely schizophrenic tone and i mean we'll talk about that soon but yeah <laughs> i think it was like i felt it was like really like too mean-spirited and violent for me at that time and seeing so many like likable stars die was jarring to me like i just wasn't expecting that you don't kill michael j fox like i mean that's the point yeah. yeah and i had not seen it since theaters so like coming back to it i like only remembered tom jones <laughs> Though I thought that the Slim Whitten music was also Tom Jones for something, like I conflated those in my head. So I thought it was like some sort of Tom Jones yodeling song and Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker as a dog. Those were all that I remembered. Uh, so what did you guys think uh, in modern day? Seth, Chris, what do you think I'm going to say? I don't know. I don't think you like this movie. <laughs> I think you do because your face looks like you do. I hated this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I hated it. I'm more surprised. I thought I was just going to be like, eh, I hated it. Oh, boy. The entire movie felt like an unfunny joke. Like a person trying to joke and just failing over and over. Nothing worked for me. Maybe with like one or two exceptions, nothing worked for me. And I remember when I first saw it, I was like, wait, I don't like this. Like, I love Tim Burton. Like, I was like, like, hurt. (laughs) <laughs> you've wounded Mars me Mars attacked me yeah and like I think his movie after this was Sleepy Hollow yes. I think that's the order yeah, and I didn't right. really yeah. care for that either and so this is when my my Burton love 
began to slide because I think after that was Planet of the Apes and like saw all those movies in theaters because I was like, nope, gonna gonna stick with it because he's given me so much. And yet, like this was the first dip where I was like, I didn't like that. And now as an adult, oh, I did not like that at all. Such a misfire. <laughs> I'll save all my you know more detailed comments for when we get into it. But yeah, boy, <laughs> Seth, do you feel similarly? I do not. I still enjoy this movie. My love of it is nowhere near as pure and effusive as it was when I first saw it. In the years since, I've just seen so many other movies that have that kind of manic and maniacal tone and and I think pull it off more evenly. I think it's a movie that's very messy and rough around the edges, which is very surprising for Tim Burton. I think its uh, reach exceeds its grasp, which is also kind of surprising for Tim Burton. But for me, this and Sleepy Hollow, I think were kind of the last couple of Tim Burton movies where where the bloom was still on the rose and where I, I thought he hadn't fully crawled up his own ass and, and set up a home there for himself forever. I am a lifelong Tim Burton fan. Some of those movies Becky mentions uh, are some of my favorite movies I've ever seen. I maintain hope to this day that eventually somehow Tim Burton will come back to his senses and return to making just absolutely magical movies, like movies that just really feel like magical and transcendent to me. And I don't think Mars Attacks is one of those. I don't think it's nearly an achievement on the same level as his best movies. But I still find a whole lot to enjoy in this movie. And and again, I like rewatching it now, I realized I think this was the first ensemble movie I ever saw where it hangs its hat on so many different characters and so many different storylines that for me, when I started to kind of waver or lose interest in one storyline, it would, you know, just kind of bounce along and move along to the next one. I I haven't seen a ton of the original disaster movies, but I've seen like Poseidon Adventure and I've seen Towering Inferno. And the way that this takes the tone from those, just that really like, pulpy, deadly serious, but also just innately silly at the same time. The way that it kind of rides that balance, I find very entertaining because I do think it kind of works as an homage. And I do just think there's something inherently very funny about the the silliness of those aliens and the way that they're designed versus the the seriousness with which humanity and everyone in the military is is taking them and that contrast i find to be really funny too and ultimately for me i just like a lot of the supporting characters and moments in this so yeah i still enjoy it i don't think it's a great movie at all i don't think it's anywhere near tim burton's best but it was still fun chris what do you think <laughs> I think about this movie. These moments of suspense. <laughs> Stares and whispers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go with hated it. Seth? I'm going to go with someone enjoyed it. I hated this movie too. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? We're in person. We can high five. Yeah. God damn it. This is why we shouldn't have gone back to in person. Because you two, you just team up on the couch. You just high five each other. And you give each other all the support and the points. And Seth gets none of the points. What did you hate about it? <laughs> Everything. I mean, hate might be a strong word, but I did not like this movie. I did not enjoy it. And that's funny because I went into it thinking like, oh, I can see why like as a pretty young teenager, like the, I was not like ready for this kind of humor. 
So I went into it thinking, oh, I'm probably like wrong about this movie, like this because mm. the movie wasn't a hit. So I felt like it was like probably like a misunderstood thing, right. and I knew it was like subversive. Like in my mind, I built it up as like, oh, that's probably actually really fun. Like how could a Tim Burton like silly alien attack movie with all these stars from the '90s like that sounds so fun? Like why wouldn't it be fun unless <laughs> unless it was, unless it was bad? <laughs> I think the movie is just not funny. It's weird. It's like. It has so many elements of a comedy, but it's not played very comedically. It's almost played straight. Yeah, and that's a thing that I recognized a lot more this time around, is that I think when I was younger, I took it as much more comedic than it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all set up to be funny, but there's not really jokes. And there's so many scenes that just sort of like come and go at like... Like, of even early on, like, Natalie Portman kind of quipping as the president's daughter, but it feels like the kinds of quips that would be in a real movie. Like, they're not, like, jokey enough for it to, this to be, they're like... They're not funny. ...a silly, like, parody. And, I mean, I kind of still feel the same way. I was like, this movie does feel, like, really sour and mean-spirited. It's very mean-spirited. In a way, like, I think that could be... There are ways, like, I can imagine that being funny, but for some reason, this just wasn't, like, clever and, like, I can enjoy a black comedy, but this wasn't black enough. It was, like, it was mean-spirited without the actual, like, funny part of whatever is funny in a black comedy. So I don't know how y'all ever, if you ever watched this movie or how you felt about it, but um, this is the end with, like, James Franco and Seth Rogen. Like, that kind of made me think of this movie and that that is definitely a movie where like there's a ton of famous people in it and a lot of them die mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in like some graphic ways or like you're like wait and Aziz Ansari now now he's gone he's not in the movie anymore like they're they're in the trailer but maybe they they barely make it into the movie but there is like heart in that movie and there's relationships and like you actually learn about you know these characters that that are left um, and just, like, this movie, I don't like anyone. Like, who's the closest person to like? Like, Lucas Haas, maybe? He seems like... Lucas Haas, the grandma, and Annette Benning. That's it. That's all you but, like, need. like, even Annette Benning <laughs> is kind of a dum-dum in it, and everyone else sucks. <laughs> like, I don't care about anybody. I like Pam Greer. I like her character. Her character is an honest and good person. I just, I didn't like or care about anybody. And so I don't care if they live or die, it's mostly like, hey, look, here's a famous person. Let's kill them. Huh. I almost felt like the opposite, where I did kind of care about them too much hmm. to like not to want to see them die in such comedic ways. Like that's mm. where this tone of this doesn't quite work. Because I can easily imagine like if this was a really broad satire and funny, like seeing s- some of this might die. But it's played seriously enough that I like get worried about them a little bit. Like even one thing I remembered about this movie is like J- Jack Nicholson died as the president. And that was like kind of shocking like to me just because I was like, oh, they kind of killed the president in this jokey way. And I remember being like disturbed by that. And like, it's not like a great character. He's not really like a good president he's not a good father and like same with like Glenn Close as the first lady is like she seems kind of awful but I was still like Natalie Portman has played seriously enough as their daughter that I was still kind of like oh she lost both her parents and I feel like kind of <laughs> bad about that and like I'm like the, it, the movie doesn't like we were talking about in Independence Day it doesn't take a moment to really like have that and it's kind of the same with everyone is like like Michael there's a little bit of like 
Michael J. Fox and Sarah Jessica Parker's relationship feels like it's just like it's developed enough that I feel like I need a little bit more like kind of sadness like or like it doesn't have to be you know like a serious dramatic moment but like the comedy version of sadness to just like show that people are upset about these things and it just like it was just too like like ramshackle like people running back and forth and doing like silly things or like the tone of something like death becomes her where people die or like things happen but like it's an actually funny movie with funny quips and funny lines and funny Mm -hmm. reactions that this movie didn't have any of that. So you can have very cartoony people and like, you know, their heads are chopped off or or this or that happens or or their lover dies. But like, there's no funny quip. Like there's nothing that's actually like clever that's being said. And so it just feels like a weird tone of like, do you care that you're, you're, boyfriend just got annihilated or that's the thing is like you can be cavalier about death but it's like those women in death becomes her are so driven like we know exactly what they want and what they care about they care about something and so they still feel real even though they're behaving in like ridiculous ways about like things that we would take more seriously well yeah and it's also like it's the the jokes in that movie become an opportunity to reveal character and it's like, even when there are jokes here, it's not really to reveal character. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, ultimately, I, I mostly agree with, with both of your critiques in the sense that I don't really think that it takes all that much care to put dramatic soil underneath these characters. And because there also aren't, like, the jokes to kind of fill in that air, it's a surprisingly lightweight movie for how heavy the actual events are. So, like, I, I don't claim at all that it's successful in that way. But again, to me, the the ensemble nature of it meant that those relatively flimsy storylines didn't have so much time to linger around that I got like super bored and checked out. Annette Benning is doing a lot in this movie. She's doing so much in this movie. <laughs> I like her performance. It's still missing like a little something, I think. I don't think like, oh, it's she's brilliant or it's brilliant, but I just noticed how much she was doing basically. <laughs> Whether good or bad. Um why is Jack Nicholson in this movie twice? I mean, I actually, like, looked this up and I know the reason, but <laughs> in general, why is he in this twice? It does not work. He wanted I... to do, like, a whole uh, Doctor Strangelove thing, right? Like... Then you have to do, like, three characters. Like, I feel like you can't just do two. I thought of Doctor Strangelove a lot when watching this movie. I think part of the reason why Doctor Strangelove is still one of my favorite movies is that it, it does then also have the jokes and it does also have the character development and all of the jokes, all of the jokes in that script reveal character. And it's just clear what they're satirizing and it's sharp, yes. you know, and it's like, it's always, it's very on point, whereas this feels like it's satirizing like a million things. Yes, with no solid point of view from which it's satirizing them. I, I And I totally agree with that. I, I do think that Jack Nicholson clearly just had fun with Tim Burton when making Batman and wanted to have some more fun and wanted to play in the sandbox twice. And literally, though, uh, I fucking forgot that he played a second role in this movie. I had no idea. And when he popped up as that other character, I'm like, wait, are they going to turn out to be like twins? Are they going to be related? I thought it was going to be a thing where like Jack Nicholson dies and maybe he had to be his double or something like that. Like (laughs) that would have a purpose. That would have been fun. That would have been great. And I personally guarantee that you get a complete return on your investment within five months. Mr. Lund, excuse me, please. Just a second, uh, Sheik uh, Rockmula. <laughs> now, even in a time of so-called 
intergalactic emergency, the people still want to roll and move. <laughs> yeah, it's just like... And, like, his performance as that second character is really bad. Like, he's great as the president, I think. He's not Eddie Murphy. <laughs> you know, like, Eddie Murphy in Coming to America or whatever movies, like, doing multiple people. It's like, sometimes you're like, oh, that was Eddie Murphy, you know? Or, like, or the makeup is really, really good and you're just kind of impressed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just like, why is Jack Nicholson he, like, two he, people? He put on a cowboy hat and he's like, <laughs> now I'm someone else. And it's like... You're not. You're still Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and I feel like I would have rolled with it if he either just played the very straight-laced, boring president character or played Root and Shoot and Tex. Like, I could have rolled with either of those. Yeah. But I would have preferred just Root and Shoot and Tex because you could at least tell he was having fun. Whereas, like, with the president thing, it just – I was literally like, why are you playing this role? What does this have for you in it? Like, what's fun about this? I want to talk about the opening scene because the opening scene, when I saw it in theaters in 1996, it confused me. And I remember being like, this is a weird opening. Like, what? What's going on? It's just a very strange opening. It's a flaming cow. It's it's a, it's a people coming out being like, do you smell barbecue? And then... In, in, they're in, like, farm country. They're in, like, and like farm one country. One farm country is, like, visiting his neighbor. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you see a giant... Herd. herd of cattle that are on fire and some like and then you see like spaceships going back up and i i always felt like that was such a weird opening because what they they set cattle on fire and then left aren't is it the whole point that they're arriving yeah <laughs> like and also what why did they do that and there was no point behind it like it was just it seems like now in retrospect it was probably on one of those cards probably and they're just like I'm let's sure. start with that oh, but I'm like certain it that doesn't it make any those... sense they're there to destroy humans well one of the long running tropes through alien lore in pop culture is cattle mutilation oh well i don't know that, but it's it's this is literally alongside alien abduction it's the most common kind of story that's been told in american culture about alien encounters from like farmers in rural areas who would find their cattle sometimes like whole herds of them at a time mysteriously physically mutilated a lot of times having all their guts taken out with no apparent stitches or wounds or anything that would show where it happened and like burning the bodies so i'm sure it was also a card but that at least has a basis in ufo folklore but then do it like that instead of just like a herd of cows on fire because that doesn't really make sense. And then it's like, or, and I would imagine that maybe the 60 original characters, maybe these characters came back, but it's like, do it with one of the characters we're going to follow. Like, why introduce random people? That was weird. It was, like, the whole thing was a just... A flaming so, cold open was kind of weird. It was strange. <laughs> it was a hot open. The title <laughs> credit sequence is all the spaceships coming down to Earth. And I actually, I do like that opener just because it's fun to look at. I think that sets the tone of mm-hmm. like, this is going to be funny or like, you know, quirky. It should have just started with that because the opening sequence, we never hear from that again. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the plot. Yeah, and it mistakenly, it feels like a setup for a punchline that never comes. Yeah, it's yeah. this. I just remember I being that. in the theater being like, huh? Like, See, I remember in the theater, I remember that being a really scary moment. Hmm. And I remember like being ready for a movie that was much, much scarier after that. Like it's not a scary movie. Because that image itself is very horrifying. But then uh, it doesn't fit the rest of the tone of, yeah, like, it the doesn't movie. At all. at all. This whole movie feels like a setup of a punchline that doesn't actually come. It's like, 
all the scenes are setting up jokes and then there's never very much of a joke or like half it's like half a joke i mean i do like this the visual like stylized elements of this movie like the way that when the aliens shoot people it turns them into like either green or red skeletons and that could be scary like i so i see what you're saying is like some of it is like evocative of a scary movie but yeah it's just this weird mix of like okay that could be scary but you're not playing it scary but it's not really funny either so like it's just like it it kind of leaves me feeling unsettled because I'm like I'm a little disturbed by this because this is disturbing but you're not playing it like it's disturbing but you're also not making me laugh to distract me from the fact that it's yeah. disturbing. The special effects budget of this movie had to be like $5. The special <laughs> effects look so bad. Well, they're supposed to be and that's And they are. Well, I, I like the design of the aliens. And like the design. they actually are very they're like they're basically the same thing from the cards, yeah. which I found interesting because it looks like something Burton would have created, which maybe is why he was drawn to it. Mm-hmm. I wish they were stop motion. I really wish they had gone that I route. I really wish they'd done that. Yeah. But instead they did computer animation, but kind of like looking in the style of stop motion. And I liked how they looked and I I liked in general the cartoonishness of the aliens and that they were so cartoony that it was like okay then it doesn't there's not this uncanny valley thing like they're not trying to get anything past me like oh this looks so real like you're talking about the alien and Independence Day looking fake so I liked that about it but just like everyone else in the movie is so weird that having the aliens also be weird is like what I'm living in a cuckoo clock like like nothing is take being taken seriously here like it could still be a comedy but like what if people were actually taking this seriously and then these cartoon aliens like come out of the sky I just thought they could have just done it with like costumes like why didn't they just do it with like yeah I don't know really I don't I thought they looked so cheap and just like like video game kind of and it didn't like not in a way that worked with the tone of this that's also the state of the art at the time in terms of like how realistically especially in terms of like rendering and being able to render uh, skin surfaces rendering like hair or fur and, and rendering like motion effects and like what it looks like you know like atmospherically when things are passing through a space like all of that technology was a lot more rudimentary than and it definitely shows yeah then, but then just don't do it then like because they they were very ambitious about the effects that they show it's like but the, the technology obviously wasn't there but i think if you're doing a send-up of like 50s like you should make them look like suits and that that would be funny like if you did the parody as like the 50s would have looked instead of, it was a disconnect for me of like trying to do like 50s sci-fi but with CGI, but then it was so bad of CGI that it didn't look convincing enough to work in that way either. I'd like to pay this movie a compliment that I, the my favorite part in it is the Martian lady. Yeah. Played by Lisa Marie. I love that sequence. I, it's the one genuinely great, I think. Like, like if you just cut that scene, <laughs> it's like pretty great. The scene or even just the, the design and yeah. look. And I think she is so iconic props to Colleen Atwood and whoever the makeup people are too. It's so great that I wish she was in a better movie. (laughs) Many great men and women have passed through here. Now we're passing through here. (laughs) Feels good, don't it? (laughs) You're very great. I like that. 
and with a great performance by Lisa Marie, who was um, Burton's girlfriend and muse for many years. She played Elvira, or what's the woman's name in Ed Wood? Like the Elvira-ish character. Vampira? Vampira Mm, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I love the look of this character. Like, that is a great Halloween costume. <laughs> like, that is a great movie design character. Everything's Becky's a Halloween costume. <laughs> Becky's got to point out the Halloween costumes, but she's right. I really love that sequence. I also have to say I enjoy Martin Short in this movie. I was going to say I hate him in this. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm an easy get for Martin Short. Like, honestly, I, I'm pretty easily taken by him. I love him. I did like that that scene is like promising young woman. <laughs> I liked that they had a Romeo and Juliet <laughs> moment at the fish tank. Yes, yes, I was like, that's a direct reference. That was the no, same year. Be, it, no, because like Romeo and Juliet came out in like November, right? <gasps> so this was December. So I don't think it could have been. How could it not have been? Unless it was like in a trailer like way earlier. But I feel like. Wow. Also, it was so exact. I didn't bring this up, but someone said all you need is love and Independence Day. <laughs> and I was like, are we Baz Luhrmanning our way through all <laughs> yes. these movies again? What is happening we here? Are. I really loved the alien love medley. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Lisa Marie in the cast list, and I was like, who the fuck did she play? I thought she did such an amazing job in that. She's great. It made me, like, surprised that she didn't have, like, more of an acting career after this. That was a physical performance. Such a physical performance. Helena Bonham Carter. Um, rather harshly, I believe. Yeah, and I mean, like, I wish we could find a way to, like, put a video clip of the movie in the (laughs) podcast, because I don't know how we can possibly convey, like, the physical performance that she's doing. It's, it's, it's not just, like, robotic. It is, like, genuinely alien. Like, it's like Mm -hmm. an alien version of a humanoid robot, like, and she she, seems like good CGI. (laughs) She does! That, that's bizarrely accurate um she absolutely does seem like good cgi speaking of cgi but not good um (laughs) good segue (laughs) just king of segues here pierce brosnan and sarah jessica parker all right what is even happening i could live the rest of my life without looking at sarah jessica parker's body with a dog head (laughs) like it is I remember my mom saw this with me in the theater, and I remember her having a really big issue with this movie because, I'm sorry to bring up more horrifying things, <laughs> she's like, those are the kinds of experiments the Nazis did. And she's like, I didn't like that. And like, I always felt like she was overreacting, but watching it this time, I was like, this is like disgusting body horror that it, I do not think this is funny. Like, this is like really disgusting to me. And like seeing his limbs hung up, like in his, you know, I like besides the dog thing, like I was like, this is putting a really bad taste in my mouth for this entire movie that I'm already not liking. I agree. I mean, it's like I might like stomach it if it was in service of some kind of a joke, but there's no joke there. It's just the joke weird. is the visual of like here she is on a dog head, like yeah, and it- well, and it's her her dog's head, you know, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's that's just like the mean spiritedness of the movie. Yeah, like, how dare you like dogs? Now you are one. <laughs> like, it's yeah, just I, like. I don't think it's justifiable to make Nazi comparisons there. Um, nonetheless, <laughs> it's a very compelling image. And it says something about it that it's uh, that it's enough to actively disgust you. But also, it's like, I see your point because there really is no like payoff to that. Like, what do the aliens want? They just want to kill us, but apparently no they also peace. want. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they but just apparently, want no peace. But apparently they don't want to just kill us. They also want to torture us. Yeah. Like, there doesn't seem to be a through line that the movie gives us. And I know this sounds, like, so extreme for, like, a comedy, but, like, you need these things even in comedies. It's like, what do the aliens want? Do they want to take over our planet because we have a resource? Do they want to enslave us so that we're their slaves? Like, what do they want from us? And that seems so out of character to torture us and do body experiments like that doesn't track with everything else that they're doing so it just seems like a stupid joke that doesn't make any sense in the well, world of the movie. Well, and what it tracks with is how humans act, not with how like aliens or other species might act. Like what that's reflecting are like the worst kinds of human impulses of sadism for its own sake. You know, like that's that's not really something that we can with any degree of information or knowledge like project onto any other species but humans. Well, like, maybe it would have worked if that was the beginning of the movie and that was, like, like they came to the farm, they experimented on someone, made her, like, a dog, and then that was, like, somehow the opening, like, a dog with a woman's head runs through town or vice versa, like, then it has some kind of a, a payoff and that's a bizarre and horrifying image, but, like, kind of funny. So it's, like, you can do it, like, I can see, like, how it might be funny, but, like, it's just not in this movie and then, it like, the movie ends with their heads, like, kissing. Really? Natalie, is that you? Yes. How are you feeling? Uh, not terribly good, I'm afraid. May I ask you a question? Hmm. Yes. Yes, of course you can, Natalie. Were you flirting with me on the show? Because if you were, I just want you to know that I liked it. <laughs> You did? Really? Because, you know, I've I've watched you on TV quite a bit, and, uh, well, I've had something of a schoolboy crush on you for, oh, gosh, ages. <laughs> like, it's just, like, such an all-over-the-place tone, because it's just, like, that is, like, obviously not anatomically correct of, like, how people could still talk and with no bodies but like it's just like is it that kind of movie is it like it's just it doesn't know i feel like what kind of movie it is like it's like yeah that scene is like too i think a that's step right. too far of like into way like magical sci-fi territory that like the rest of the movie isn't quite there so it's just like it, yeah it just feels like every scene has its own rules and its own kind of like it just feels lazy and a little bit like we didn't know what we were doing with this. Movie. Yeah, like they can abduct people, but like then what do they want to learn from humans? Like do experiments on them, but it could be funny experiments, you know, of of people of uh, a people that don't understand humans so that they have, you know, like it could have mm-hmm. gone so many different ways, but instead they're like, wouldn't it be funny if we gave her a dog and then her head was on the dog? Why? <laughs> Or, yeah, like, but, like, you could also, like, have her be shocked and horrified, and at least then you would get something out of it. But she's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm a dog person now. Like, it's just like, okay, like, and? (laughs) Like, what do you now imagine is going to happen? Like, these characters have no, like, life to them. Like, And nothing happens. They don't even, like, they literally can't. It's not like she then makes the spaceship crash before it hits something, you know, like they don't do anything. Yeah. It's like they might as well be dead at that point because they don't influence the plot whatsoever. Do you want to take a guess who I think is the worst in this movie? Oh, um, Oh, no. There's so many people. I mean, I feel like they had to like... Jack Black? 
shut down Hollywood just to like produce this. <laughs> They're like, sorry, no more productions. We've got everyone at Mars Attacks. Let me look at the cast list again. Uh, my guess, my guess is Jack Black, Danny DeVito, <laughs> Natalie Portman. <laughs> What oh. is she? She doesn't know what she's doing in this movie, and she feels so miscast. Um, she was. This is around the time of like a little after the professional. She was like one of those like oh she's like a child actress on the rise, but she's just like she's not a comedic actress, and she's like at least Glenn Close is trying to be like you know Glenn Close is funny. She's like yeah. trying to be Glenn a character. Is, I think yeah. Glenn Close is great. In yeah, this. And, like Jack Nicholson's trying to be like a character, but like she's just like mumbling through this movie, but and again, she's just like she's, she's not nothing. That's she's what I think. Nothing. It's the writing because like yeah. it's her character is like. Kind of the most sympathetic, her and, like, Lucas Haas, I think, are both, Mm -hmm. like, we're supposed to care about them. But it's, like, it's weird because she's in this, like, very heightened, like, White House setting that's, like, and her, like, Glenn Close's performance is, the reason it works is because it's clearly sending up, like, Nancy Reagan and a couple other first ladies. So, like, you know what the joke is there. But, like, Nancy Reagan as a serial killer. So, like, Nancy Reagan. (laughs) But then they wrote her to be, like, this moody teen, but she's just, like, herself. She's not, like, too moody, and she's not, like, too one way or the other. Like, it's just so bizarre. I I wouldn't want to imply that Natalie Portman has moods in this movie. (laughs) I think that's saying too much. It was just bizarre to me, because I think she's a great actress now. I just was like, wow, she is miscast in this well, like, and, and I think <laughs> in The Professional, she's great. Yeah, she's a great child actress. Yeah. It was just like, I was in a movie full of crazy over-the-top performances. I was like, she. Need- I wish she had an over-the-top performance. She was just like, oh, hi. Yeah. It's the, I think it's the writing is they just didn't know what to do with that character. That's like, they want, like, why not just make the whole first family, like, ridiculous and then, like, not make her, like, one of the characters that we're supposed to care about? Because, like, the contrast of, like, her being a serious person, but in, her parents are so ridiculous that, like, there's no way we can believe that she's as, like, grounded as she's supposed to be i enjoyed seeing sylvia sydney in this movie i love her in this movie the grandma and this was her last performance she was in beetlejuice right as the, yeah. the yes the, the guide to the recently deceased yes. okay are very sick. What's happening to him? What's killing him? I think it must be my music. She was a great actress in like the 30s and maybe like really? into the 40s. Ins- yeah, insanely long career. Wow. She was in one of Hitchcock's best like 30s movies, like not very well known, Sabotage, but um, oh. she, I, she's an actress that I really like. She looks like Drew Barrymore when she's young. She, she, was she has like very similar like mannerisms to Drew Barrymore. I mean, I never would have recognized her if I hadn't seen the, her name. She does not look like Drew Barrymore <laughs> anymore. She's genuinely funny in this movie. And I do like like the way that they kill the aliens with the music. That's one joke that I think actually works. I think it actually works too. And I was going to say, because I just wanted to briefly bring up that I think the other 
actual joke in this movie that I think actually works and still works to me is when the Martian translator falsely says that the Martians come in peace and hippies in the crowd literally like release a dove into the sky and that's when the aliens start laser beaming everything. We come in peace. We come in peace. We come in peace. They came in peace. We come in peace. We come in peace. That's the one, like, Natalie Portman line I liked. Later, she was like, guess it wasn't the dove. Yeah, but she says it after millions, not millions, hundreds of people have perished. Yes, this movie has Tony Guess issues. it wasn't the dove. Oh, gosh. It feels out of place. There's another good line that I liked, which is after uh, Congress has been wiped out, Jack Nicholson <laughs> says, we still got two out of three branches of government, and that's not bad. <laughs> like... <laughs> That is actually one of the other good lines. Yeah. That's true. It feels really weird to me that this movie is worldwide, but it's like, it's Las Vegas and DC. Like, <laughs> why are the Martians attacking Las Vegas? Like, they don't, again, it's like they don't have a purpose. It's just because Las Vegas is funny. Yeah, and it's also, but it also made that make a lot more sense to me when, you know, we learned that there were a lot more locations that were going to be destroyed in this movie, and they end up, like, cutting all of those out for budget reasons. Do you think the aliens and Mars attacks shooting the dog is a comment on Independence Day? <laughs> I kind of think so. Yeah. Well, but also, didn't you say it was literally one of the cards? It was like shooting the dog in front of someone. Yeah, that's true. It still feels like a reference to be like, well, in our movie, the dog dies. <laughs> no, that that actually was one other note I had, which is like, it's surprising to me that this movie wasn't directly wasn't intended to directly riff on independence day mm -hmm. because it feels like a lot of things in this movie like it feels even like annette benning's character is making fun of the hippie chicks in independence day yeah who were like greeting the ufo by standing directly under where the laser beam would be coming out i think this movie would have been better if they actually had been able to like watch so. independence day that's first. what i'm saying that's what i'm saying it's like i, I feel like if they just like taken maybe another year waited till next summer at least there would have been more grist for the joke mill or something ultimately this movie is absolutely a hot mess at best <laughs> <laughs> like i think i think it should have also been like rated r and they should have just gone for it with the violence and i agree that's with also a problem i think is that it wasn't rated r it, it, it was trying to like be a kid's movie but it's not a kid's movie but it looks like but, a kid's movie yeah so it like it drew me in as like a young ish teenager and then i was like this is not for me actually but it could have been like you know how like south park looks so rudimentary and cheap but it's clearly very graphic and for adults like that's what this movie could have been but it wasn't because it was still trying to be like pg-13 yeah i think it's one of those movies where i think they're just like literally trying to trick people to go to the movie as like oh you like aliens kids don't you you'll love this and then the kids get there and they're like uh no we don't <laughs> well and it's also 
like really in retrospect, I feel like the writer took a whole lot of inspiration slash ripping off material from Dr. Strangelove, but just ultimately didn't have the follow through or didn't do enough drafts to like get it to a point where there are really great comedic moments, great actual punchline jokes or punchline physical comedy moments, and using all of those again to reveal fucking character. Like It's like there's so much that clearly wasn't left on the page, but that could have been put on the page that would have made it so much funnier. And, you know, I obviously hadn't seen Dr. Strangelove before I saw Mars Attacks. To me, especially now, like it feels like everyone involved in making this movie thought they were making the next Dr. Strangelove, just without the kind of script ever in place that it could ever be anywhere near it. Yeah, like to make a movie like that, you have to trust in like one person's kind of vision that they know what they're doing. And I guess like, yes. maybe no one knew who that person was. <laughs> like was it, it wasn't the writer and I don't think it I don't think Tim Burton is quite that person either. So it, at least not in this movie, definitely not. Yeah. And like Becky said, I mean like looking at what Tim Burton did before this movie and then looking at what he did after, I was like, "Oh, this is the one." Like that This is the uh, catalyst. Yeah. Like every movie before this was a classic. Um, like some Stone of our favorites: Cold Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, even Ed- like Pee Wee. Like Pee Wee is fucking hilarious. That movie, that movie absolutely holds up, and we should cover that in a different episode <laughs> of the podcast. We haven't actually done like a Tim Burton podcast. We, I feel like we need to do like, like an actual like deep dive into Burton. And like Edward Scissorhands, especially like he's made, he truly has made some of my favorite movies I've ever seen. And some of those movies have some of the funniest fucking jokes in them Mm -hmm. that I've ever seen. Edward Scissorhands, a movie that makes me cry, also has absolutely hilarious punchline jokes to it. And just like, uh, like physical comedy jokes. Awesome physical comedy jokes. He can do it. He just hasn't done it. He absolutely can do it. It, (laughs) In a while. And again, it's like. He could do it if he wanted to. Who knows? Well, <laughs> Mars attacked. <laughs> and Independence dayed. <laughs> uh, we will... We'll we, be back? We got more. <laughs> yeah. We got many more aliens to come in. In our next episode, we'll be talking about the 1997 alien movies Men in Black and Contact, which are, again, very different from these two movies, so... Get ready? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Again, the undisputed king of segues, Chris. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mars Attacks just discombobulated me. (laughs) And that's all the flaming cattle we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, as well as anywhere else you get your podcast content. And leave us a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people see the show. You can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young to help us make more episodes of this show. I have been Seth. And I could have been at a barbecue. That's great, it starts with an earth.